السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألم تر كيف فعل ربك بأصحاب الفيل ألم يجعل كيدهم في تضليل وأرسل عليهم طيرا أبابيل ترميهم بحجارة من سجيل فجعلهم كعصف مأكول رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحل العقدة من لساني يفقه قولي والحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر أمين يا رب العالمين ثم أما بعد We have reached as I mentioned at the conclusion of last week's session the final ten surahs of the Quran and these last ten surahs are a change of subject from what we have been studying in the previous surahs Surah Humazah that we studied some things from last week represents the final surah of warning about the afterlife. Juz Amma generally, as you all know, the 30th Juz of Qur'an and the surahs that are contained in it predominantly deal with the issue of the afterlife, the Day of Judgment and different descriptions of it, and various warnings of it to those who disbelieved. But now the subject is changing dramatically. These last ten surahs deal almost exclusively with something to do with the life of the Messenger ﷺ. Pretty much all of them have a, an issue of asbabun nuzul. Now in the, in the Qur'an, asbabun nuzul means context of revelation, right? So in the Qur'an there are many, many, many ayat in which there is no difference of opinion about their context, historical context. But there are also several passages in which there is no clear cut absolute position of the scholars that this is definitely when the ayah was revealed. There's a general framework for many ayat. So we know generally a surah may be Makki, early Makki, later Makki, or early Madani, or later Madani. But we may not have a specific incident tied to it. And even if there is one, there may not be absolute agreement upon that. There may be a narration or two that are found. But more, as we get into these last 10 surahs, we're going to see there's a lot of context of revelation. And there's a lot of historical background. But we want to first understand this transition at the end of the Qur'an. What is it transitioning from and what is it transitioning to? By the end of Surah Humazah, which is the, one of the toughest descriptions of hellfire in the Qur'an that we studied last week, this is a warning given to anybody who fits a certain description. لِكُلِّ humazatin لُمَزَةٍ right? Anyone who fits the description of humaza and Lumaza. In other words, it was speaking in universal and general terms. But this message, even though it is universal and it is for all humanity, who is the first audience? It's the Quraysh. And you know, but you have to understand something. When you speak in general terms, especially to those who are hard-headed and those who are criminal, sometimes it doesn't click with them until you point the finger at them and say, no, I'm talking about you in particular. This isn't about anybody else first, this is about you. A lot of times there's this psychological uh, sentiment of deflection. In other words, when you hear somebody, uh, the khatib even, even the Muslims can do this. The khatib is talking about something. One should not do ghibah. One should not lie. One should be honest. Some, we should be, or people should be such and such and such. When you hear the word people, you figure, yeah, people should be, I'm already good. 
Or I could think of someone else who needs to hear this khutbah. Who do you not think about? Yourself. So what's happening in these ayat, the, the, the ayat that we've already covered, now there's this general address to mankind. But now we're gonna see that there is a direct address to the Quraysh themselves. Direct address to them. This is not just talk, don't think about anybody else, think about your own selves. And now in the previous surah, just a small glimpse, even though we'll do more of this study next week, in the previous surah we saw one of the features of hellfire of crushing its inhabitants. The word for that was hutama, that which tramples and crushes. Hutama in Arabic, the, the produce that comes under your feet and is crushed into powder, right? And this surah, Allah Azza wa gives us a glimpse of how He can even send, don't think that punishment is so far away, that kind of punishment that will crush you and smother you can even be brought in this world. So in this surah, we will read, this is Surah Al-Fil, we will read how Allah sent His punishment, of one such punishment, a small glimpse of what will happen in the hellfire, in this dunya, against the people, the, the army of the elephant Abraha, and the whole story you've heard since you were kids. And what is the, what is the punishment describing? فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَعَصْفٍ مَأْكُولٍ It's crushing them, literally. It's, and it's like they're, they're like eaten corn. Like chewed up corn, that's what they turn into. But we'll talk about more of that next week. This week's agenda, inshallah, was to, it was to first briefly illustrate this transition from the general universal warning to the specific warning directed at Quraysh. That's one. The second agenda is to understand what connects these ten surahs together. These ten surahs that are at the end of the Quran are beautifully rhetorically connected and form one cohesive argument. These are actually not ten separate subjects, they are ten parts of one subject. They are ten components of one and the same thing. So we're gonna try to understand what ties all of these ten surahs together today, inshallah. And from next week on, we'll take one surah at a time and study it in more detail. I felt it would be more beneficial for us to have that overview and that framework when we engage in the study of these surahs, inshallah ta'ala. And also because a lot of us since we were young, or even if you take shahada later on in life and you become Muslim, these are short surahs, you're encouraged to at least memorize these short surahs. So having an overview of them is very beneficial and very helpful. You see, this conflict, this ideological conflict, which later on became a military and a social conflict, a political conflict, in the life of the Messenger wasallam, this conflict is fundamentally taking place in the city of Mecca. And the city of Mecca has a long history. Originally it was called Bakka. And this city was installed, inaugurated, initiated by the hijrah of Ibrahim salam. So the founder of the city you could say is Ibrahim salam and his journey, and you all know the famous journey that he took and he made dua. And his dua is actually that which allowed for the city to even exist. Now that dua has a lot to do with what we're going to study in these last 10 surahs. So it's important that we revise that dua that Ibrahim made, so we understand what these last 10 surahs are about. This dua of Ibrahim occurs in two places. We're going to highlight one of those places today. The two places I'm going to tell you, of, of one place in Surah Ibrahim. Obviously in Surah Ibrahim, the dua of Ibrahim. And the second place is in Surah Al-Baqarah. We're going to go through some things from the dua of Ibrahim alayhi salam in Surah Al-Baqarah. Then we'll tie it together to these last 10 surahs. Ibrahim alayhi salam says, Rabbi ja'al hadha baladan aminan. My master, make this a peaceful city. Obviously, which city is he talking about? Mecca. Now, in the Quran, there are two renditions. Rabbi ja'al hadha balada aminan fi Surah Ibrahim. In Surah Ibrahim, he said, make this city peaceful. 
But in this surah, in Baqarah, he says, make this a peaceful city. So I'll say it again in English. One time he says, make this city peaceful. The other time he says, make this a peaceful city. A subtle difference between these two things. Make this city peaceful, make this a peaceful city. In English even it sounds almost the same, but they're actually different. This change in language actually teaches us when which dua took place. When he first came to this desert, was there a city there? No. So he's looking at emptiness. And he's looking at it and he's saying, رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا بَلَدًا آمِنًا Make this, meaning this nothing, this emptiness, this desolate valley, وَادٍ غَيْرِذِ ذَرْعٍ Make this into a city. Not only make it a city, make it peaceful. And make sure it's safe. But later on when he comes after a few years, when he came back, was there a city there now? There was a city. So that the dua changed, that's in Surah Ibrahim. رَبِّ جَعَلْ هَذَا الْبَلَدَ آمِنًا Make this city peaceful. So now he's looking at a city when he pointed at it, and he said, هَذَا الْبَلَدَ Now make it peaceful. So the language changed subtly. But more importantly, the first part of his dua was to ask for the safety, the peace of the city. The second part of his dua was, وَرْزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ Provide its citizens all kinds of fruit. Provide its citizens all kinds of fruit. Fruit implies in a literary sense provision, take care of them financially, well-being, what we call you know, prosperity. In English literature we call it prosperity. So make sure that they have peace and make sure they have prosperity. Have you ever heard the English phrase peace and prosperity? Right? That's the first part. A summary of the first part of the prayer of Ibrahim salam for Makkah is give it peace and Prosperity. In political science, by the way, you learn that a society cannot survive until it has two things. It has peace and it has prosperity. Now what does that mean? It means if you have a house, you have a business, you have a job, you have a car, you have money, but none of it is safe. There's no peace, there's no safety. Then that society cannot survive because there is no safety. But if everything is safe... Everything is secure, there's plenty of police, there's plenty of law and order, everything is safe. But you can't find a job and you can't find money to feed your family, that society can't survive either. Peace alone is not enough, prosperity alone is not enough. For a society to be healthy, to function, you need peace and you need prosperity. You need both of them. So there's a genius of Ibrahim salam inside this dua, that he asked for one, then he made sure he asked for the other also. But then we learn something, about the, something else about Ibrahim salam. He's really worried, he understands that Allah has made him imam. You know the word used? إِنِّي جَعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ imama. Allah has, I, I'm making you imam over people. Imam essentially, of the many things it means, essentially it means leader. So he has been given a position of leadership. All believers are in a position of leadership over their family. This is why we make dua, وَجَعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ Imama, make us leaders over pious, righteous people. In other words, we're asking Allah, because you know when you're a leader, you get asked about the people who are under you. So you want to be asked about people who did good, not people who did bad. So Ibrahim alayhi salam makes sure he asks, وَرْزُقْ أَهْلَهُ مِنَ الثَّمَرَاتِ مَنْ آمَنَ مِنْهُمْ بِاللَّهِ وَالْيَوْمِ الْآخِرِ Provide its citizens, its people from all kinds of fruit, that's the prosperity part, but he said only those who believe in Allah in the last day. On the day of judgment, he doesn't want to answer Allah for his children who may have fallen into shirk, who may have fallen into kufr. So he says, if, when you do provide for them, only provide for the believing ones. In other words, let the disbelieving ones starve. I don't care about those. 
I'd rather they don't discontinue and their generations don't discontinue. By the way, this is the same concern raised by Nuh alayhi salam. وَلَا يَلِدُ إِلَّا فَاجِرًا كَفَّارًا He makes dua to Allah to destroy the nation saying they will not give birth to anyone except those who are immersed in sin, the worst kinds of sinners and the worst kinds of disbelievers. So they deserve that their entire nation be extinct. That shirk and that kufr, that fujur should not continue. Ibrahim alayhi salam says, only give provision to my believing children. Allah says, no, وَمَنْ كَفَرَ فَأُمَتِّعُهُ قَلِيلًا Even the one who disbelieves, I will provide him a little also. So there's a dialogue between Allah and Ibrahim alayhi salam in Surah Al-Baqarah. Now let's come to the end. Surah Al-Feel. All of you know what happened in Surah Al-Feel. There's an army of elephants, and elephants are something that Arabs have generally never seen in battle. This is not something normal for the Arabs to see. So much so that when they saw this, you know what the year was called? This became such an anomaly that the historical name for it, even among the kuffar, was Am al-Feel. The, the year of the elephant. It was such a strange thing for them. How are they going to fight an army of elephants? And yet, so this was a time, if you were to say Mecca's peace is not going to last. The peace and safety of Mecca will not last. This would be the time to say it. When you see the army of elephants approaching, and by most accounts, the, the inhabitants of Mecca, you know what they had done, right? They had fled. They had fled up into the mountains, except for a few to try to negotiate and talk. And eventually they said, Allah will protect his own house. And we'll deal with those narrations next week. But for now understand that this was a time where nobody would argue that the city, its peace will remain intact. The agenda of Abraha was to destroy the city altogether, including the Kaaba, and especially the Kaaba. But under the most impossible circumstance, Allah still fulfilled the prayer of Ibrahim salam, And he retained and maintained the peace of this city. That's what Surah Al-Feel is about. Maintaining the peace of Mecca. Which is the first part of the prayer of Ibrahim salam. Remember he asked, make this city, make this a peaceful city. But what was the second part? The second part was, provide them all kinds of fruit, meaning prosperity. The next surah after Surah Al-Feel is Surah Quraysh. And what is Surah Quraysh about? لِإِلَافِ قُرَيْشِ إِلَافِهِمْ رِحْلَةَ الشِّتَاءِ وَالصَّيْفِ the surah essentially is about the Arabs getting to enjoy caravans in the summer and in the winter. They can go to any trade region they want and import all kinds of goods back and make these, you know, buying and selling this trade. They can do it all year round. Could any other Arab tribe do that? No. Why not? Because any Arab, any other Arab tribe, Arab tribe tries to do it. It's kind of like going on the George Bush Turnpike over. You have to pay the toll. <laughs> You get robbed. You will get robbed. You will have to pay. The only exception are the Quraysh who get to go freely. Why doesn't anybody mess with them? Even if they try to mess with them, they're like, oh, you're Quraysh. Oh, I'm going to back off right now. Why? Because they felt these people are sacred. They are custodians of the sacred house. So they had universal street cred. They had respect. But there's another political reason also. A lot of these tribes, they had false gods and you know, idol worship. But where are these idols being held hostage? At the Kaaba. The idols are at Kaaba. So if you rob them, when the, when the Qurayshi gets robbed, what does he say? So uh, what was your idol again? I'm going to make sure I break his neck when I go back. <laughs> right? So they're not going to mess with the Quraysh because they have this respect for the Haram and they're the custodians and it's understood. They have this universal pass. Because of that, they get to enjoy literally all kinds of fruit. They get to go all over the place. Is this the second part of Ibrahim salam's prayer? Both are fulfilled. One part of it in Surah Al-Feel, the next part of it in Surah Quraysh. Okay. 
So now that this, both parts are fulfilled, at the end of Surah Quraysh, Allah Azza wa Jal does make mention of it. He says, فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ They should enslave themselves now, they should worship and enslave themselves to the master of this house. What does he mean by this house? Kaaba? And when was this dua made about them? When the Kaaba was to be built in that city. And who was this dua made by? Ibrahim alayhi salam. Just by mentioning this house, they are being reminded of where their city began. It began with the prayer of the one who built this house, Ibrahim alayhi salam. And so he reminds them, الَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعٍ وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ He gave them food in time of hunger and protecting them from hunger. And he gave them safety despite situations of fear. He still offered them safety. So he reminds them of the favor. That is a direct result of the prayer of Ibrahim salam. Now, are they worthy of enjoying these benefits? Have they acted in a way that they should enjoy the, the, the uh, benefits that come from the dua of Ibrahim salam? Mind you, Ibrahim salam didn't just ask this, these benefits for all of his kids. Who did he ask for? His believing kids. But the Quraysh, are they the believing children? No, they're not. So even though Allah said, the one who disbelieves, I will let him enjoy a little also. Allah said that, وَمَنْ كَفَرَ فَأُمَتِّعُهُ قَلِيلًا Then I will drag him into the hellfire. But now it has to be made clear, are these the worthy children of Ibrahim salam or the unworthy? It has to be clear. The next surah exposes, even though these two, these, this group of people enjoys the benefits of the prayer of Ibrahim salam, they are not worthy of it. أَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي يُكَذِّبُ بِالدِّينَ Do you see the one who lies against the religion? Pushes the orphan around? Doesn't even encourage... Jazakallah Thank you so much. Doesn't even encourage the feeding of the, of the needy? And even when they pray, they're lazy, they show off, and they're so cheap. وَيَمْنَعُونَ الْمَاعُونَ Ma'un in Arabic is to, to ask to, uh, you know, small favors. Small favors are ma'un. Somebody comes over to your, your neighbor comes to your house and says, can I borrow some salt? They say, ah, I don't know what that is. You slam the door in their face. This is yamna'un al-ma'un. This is be overly cheap. Not even allowing for the smallest favor to pass through your hands. You know, you're sitting in a class next to some people and their pen runs out of ink and they're like four sticking out of your pocket. You just cover your pocket like this. This is yamna'un al-ma'un. <laughs> Right? So Allah exposes how unworthy they are. How they're not worthy of the benefits that they have been enjoying. Now when they are exposed as the unworthy, go back to the passage that was a conversation between Allah Azza wa Jal and Ibrahim salam. This was in Surah Al-Baqarah once again. Allah said, I will provide the disbelieving children also, then I will drag him into hellfire. Do you think Ibrahim salam likes this response? <laughs> that some of his kids will end up in the hellfire and they will be in kufr? There will be some that will be in kufr, so he wants to make sure that some will never fall into kufr. So he makes a two-part dua. He first begins with himself and his son. رَبَّنَا وَجْعَلْنَا مُسْلِمَيْنِ لَكَ وَمِن ذُرِّيَّتِنَا أُمَّةً مُسْلِمَةً لَكَ Oh Allah, at least make sure we too, myself, and who's building the house with him? Ismail alayhi salam, وَإِذْ يَرْفَعُوا إِبْرَاهِيمُ الْقَوَاعِدَ مِنَ الْبَيْتِ وَإِسْمَعِيلِ So Ismail and he, at least make sure we're two, both of us are Muslim before you, we're in complete submission before you, and make sure that from our future generations, at least there's one group that stays Muslim only for you, that stays in submission only to you. وَأَرِنَا مَنَاسِكَنَا وَتُبْ عَلَيْنَا And show us our rituals and accept our tawbah. Okay. Now this dua is followed up by another dua of Ibrahim alayhi salam. He knows that future generations will only remain Muslim 
You know, the only way to stay Muslim, if they're gonna be kuffar and Muslims together, Islam will deteriorate unless you send someone who makes sure Islam remains pure. So in his genius, he asked, رَبَّنَا وَبْعَثِّيهِمْ رَسُولًا مِّنْهُمْ Immediately after that, he asked, Oh Allah, send a messenger from among themselves. Appoint one, raise one among them who is a messenger among themselves. So the unworthy are the disbelieving, and the worthy are the believing. And the leader of the worthy will be a messenger. Isn't that true? Now come to the, uh, the end of Qur'an. Surah you know, Al-Ma'oon exposed the unworthy children. If you expose the unworthy, it is only natural that you should now expose who? The, who's the alternative? Who should the custody of this house be? If these people are not the rightful custodians of the house. If the purpose of the house of Allah is to pray, and these people only pray to show off. They are night. You know, الَّذِينَ هُمْ يُرَاؤُونَ The purpose of the house is prayer. But they only do so to show off. And sacrifice. When you sacrifice the animal, what are you supposed to do with the flesh, the meat? You're supposed to distribute it. It's an act of giving. But these people, what do they do? They're so cheap. وَيَمْنَعُونَ الْمَعُونَ they're, they're not even worthy of the little, least bit of giving. So they're clearly unworthy. So now who is exposed in the next surah? Who is worthy then? Who should be the rightful custodian of this house? إِنَّا أَعْطَيْنَاكَ الْكَوْثَرِ we have given you, meaning the Messenger ﷺ, you, O Muhammad ﷺ, the abundant good. Scholars have talked tremendously about this word al-kawthar. The, the hadith is very clear that al-kawthar is a river in paradise. But the word kawthar is generic, and it includes many other things, including the victory Allah gave His Messenger ﷺ, including the Qur'an, including the revival of the legacy of Ibrahim, including the cleansing of the house of Allah that was built by Ibrahim and had been corrupted by the unworthy children of Ibrahim ﷺ. All of these are part of the great good that Allah has given to the Messenger ﷺ. Just imagine, this house that was built for Tawheed, for centuries, shirk is being done at the house that is supposed to be the capital of Tawheed. And who has the honor of cleaning it up again? It's Rasulullah wasallam. This is a huge honor. This is a tremendous honor. And the fact that you know the qibla is changed in his risala. That for centuries before, the believers, wherever they may be, are praying, praying in what direction? Al-Aqsa. But now, in, under his leadership, it's been changed. So he's been given the ultimate good. But then Allah says these beautiful two things. This is three ayah surah. It's a very short surah, Surah Al-Kawthar, right? The second ayah. Allah Azza wa says, فَصَلِّ لِرَبِّكَ وَنْحَرْ Pray to your master and sacrifice. Prayer and sacrifice. Whose legacy is that? Ibrahim alayhi salam. Prayer and sacrifice. Because that, that, that tradition of sacrifice started with who? Ibrahim alayhi salam, with Ismail, that, that entire incident with Ismail. So he's being told, you now revive the legacy of your father Ibrahim. And then he says, inna shani'aka huwa al-abtar, which refers to a specific obnoxious comment made by a kafir, which we'll talk about when the time comes. But again, the language is general. Somebody has been declared the enemy, shani' of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. What we're learning in between the lines is, now that this surah has come, and it's clear who are the worthy children, and who are the unworthy, now you're no longer one family. Even though your father is one, which is who? Ibrahim. You are no longer one family. They have become, for all practical purposes, your enemy. And what makes them your enemy is not that different blood runs in your veins. It's the same blood, it's the same family, it's the same tribe. You're even raised by the same you know, clan. That's not what makes you enemies. What makes you enemies is what is in your hearts. Iman versus kufr. 
Belief versus disbelief. So the next surah explains, why am I your enemy? Why, are you, why am I no longer with you? Why do I have nothing to do with you? I am completely disassociating myself from you people, even though I am from your tribe. In Arab, in Arab history, you know what the first thing is, as far as your identity, your citizenship is your tribe. That's your citizenship. You know, the people carry around, what qabila I come from? What tribe I come from? And the messenger is being directly commanded to renounce his citizenship. In what words? قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Very next surah. Tell them, tell, Allah tells him to tell them. قُلْ is very important in this surah. Now I'm telling you to go tell them, don't even call them يَا Quraysh. Right? Ya qawmi, no, don't use those words in my nation, Quraysh, my people, my family, my tribe, don't use those words with them. Call them disbelievers. And why are they disbelievers? They don't enslave themselves. They don't worship what I worship. لا أعبدوا ما تعبدون ولا أنتم عابدون ما Over and over again in that surah, making sure we're not on the same page anymore. This is done. I am on the legacy of Ibrahim and you are clearly not. So there's this declaration almost of conflict and war. And when you open up this conflict and you say, I have nothing to do with you, you've clearly made an enemy out of your own people. And whenever you have this kind of conflict or war, somebody will win and somebody will lose. It's inevitable. It's inevitable that one will win and one will lose. Guess what the next surah is? إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ First the conflict has been announced in Surah Al-Kafirun, and then the victory at this, of this conflict has been given in the hands of the Messenger wasallam. There are several opinions about the historical revelation of إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ uh, a great number of scholars believe it's Madani, some also believe it's Makki, and there are several narrations on either side. We're gonna try to process those when we get to that surah. But essentially, this surah is a promise by Allah Azza wa Jal of the victory that is guaranteed. It's guaranteed you will win in this conflict. Now to understand the connection between this surah and the next, we have to take a little bit of a tangent. When Allah gives victory to the Messenger wasalam, do you think this is a small occasion in history or a big one? This is a very big occasion in human history. The victory of Islam on this earth and the establishment of Allah's religion on the earth is a huge occasion in the history of this deen. The ayat that come down, اليوم أكملت لكم دينكم are not, this is not something small, this is very huge. This is the final messenger and this is his final victory. This is a very, very big occasion. Whenever Allah sends a big victory or a big sign in this world, some major help from Allah comes, before it comes, Allah sends some minor signs. You know how Allah helped Musa salam in the biggest way? The biggest way He helped him was when the water opened up and he crossed. But before that major help, was there some minor help, minor signs? That were there to just cast, set the scene. Know that the big victory is on the way, but here are some smaller signs. There, you know, there was a staff, there was the hand, there was the nine signs that were given to warn the leaders of you know, the Fir'aun and his chiefs, his generals. Right? So there's the big sign, but before the big victory, there's the smaller signs. There's smaller tokens. And when you see the smaller tokens, it's supposed to be like this. My teacher used to explain it like this. He used to say, you know how you can see clouds and the winds change before there's a heavy rainstorm? And those clouds and those winds are supposed to tell you that something big is about to happen. It's just like that. You see smaller signs before you see the major signs. Now, when Allah guarantees the victory in إِذَا جَاءَ نَصْرُ اللَّهِ وَالْفَتْحِ In this surah, is this a small sign or a major sign? This is a major sign. So what is the small sign? What's a small indication that this big victory is on its way? Can you show us a small victory 
So it'll give us a taste of the big victory that is eventual. The next surah deals with what is your most immediate problem, Ya Rasulullah? Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. One of the most vicious enemies of the Messenger was Abu Lahab. Let me take care of him for you. Tabbat yada Abi Lahabin watab. And not only will I take care of him, I'll take care of the misses also. Right? Allah Azza wa Jal destroyed and perished Abu Lahab, and this was a guarantee, a small token of the eventual victory that is coming. That leaves us with three more surahs. This is the end of the Mus'haf. And you know, the way Shaykh Amin Ahsan Islahi in his book, in his tafsir, Tadabur al Quran, and also Shaykh Muhammad Farooq al Zain in Nazm al Quran, the way they talk about these last three surahs is very beautiful. I'll just summarize it very briefly, inshaAllah. Number one. When people are in a war for a long time, often they forget what they were fighting about. And this should be very familiar to us given our context in history. When people fight a conflict for a long time, the war goes on and on and on, and they forget, why were we at war to begin with? Why are we even there? Why are we even fighting? This happens often, in, this is not a new thing in human history, this has happened many, many, many times before. Has this conflict between the Messenger and the Quraysh, the believers and the disbelievers, is this conflict short or has it been going on for a long time? It's been going on quite some time. Is it possible, is it important to remind oneself, why are we fighting to begin with? Before we lose sight. Remember where this conflict began? Ibrahim salam made a dua. Those who believe, provide them. Those who don't believe, don't provide them. So the conflict was between believers and disbelievers. And if you want to summarize the legacy of Ibrahim salam in one word, if you want to say, what is Ibrahim all about? In one word, ask any man, woman, and child, they will say Tawheed. Ibrahim his legacy amounts to one thing, the uniqueness, the oneness of Allah, trusting only Him, relying only upon Him, believing only Him, asking only Him. That's, that's his legacy. That's the legacy of Ibrahim So we're reminded of the agenda of the Ummah, once again, once this conflict is guaranteed victory. What is the next surah? What's the purpose of the surah? What's the agenda of the surah? Tawheed. Which in, a, in summary is the legacy of Ibrahim salam. Now, this Tawheed, is this the first time Tawheed was revealed by the way? No. Every single messenger in history was given Tawheed. The same message of the oneness, uniqueness, the, the unparalleled uh, you know, uh, oneness of Allah Azza wa Jal was the crux of every messenger's message. But is it the case that in human history, Tawheed came and people believed in it, but over time it started getting weaker and weaker and fell into shirk again and got corrupted and deteriorated. Is that, is that the case in human history? Absolutely. Because this is not the first time it happened. People were believers before, but over generations it, got, it starts getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and people fall back into shirk. This, this certainly does happen. Now because this happens, not only did Allah send Tawheed, Allah sent two guardians of Tawheed. You see, the idea is Tawheed can get corrupted from outside influences. And Tawheed can also get corrupt. This Iman in Allah can also be corrupted from inside temptations and influences. So there are negative influences on the outside and there are negative influences on the inside. The negative influences on the outside, Allah sent a guardian against them. That's Surah Al-Falaq. قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ الْفَلَقِ مِنْ شَرِّ مَا خَلَقِ وَمِنْ شَرِّ غَاسِقٍ إِذَا وَقَبْ And so on. This surah is dedicated to protecting the believer from corruption and evil influence from the outside. But what's the evil influence on the inside? It's the waswasa of shaitan. Right? It's the nafs. 
it's the it's the bad company that can whisper something into your ear and you say yeah this is a good idea and you fall into you first fall into corrupt behavior eventually it ruins your tawhid your iman in Allah altogether so the corruption of the inside is guarded against in surah an-nas qul a'udhu bi rabbin nas malikin nas ilahin nas so tawhid and its two guardians one from corruption of the outside the other from corruption of the inside thus culminating this series of beautiful surahs these last 10 surahs of the Quran we recite them all the time but they present such a profound cohesive argument tied to the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam and showing how the legacy of Ibrahim alayhi salam is connected to the legacy of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam the last thing i will share with you is Allah's instruction to the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam and this ayah that i'm going to recite to you or show you part of is the ayah that shows us that Allah is telling the messenger to revive the legacy of Ibrahim فَاتَّبِعْ مِلَّةَ إِبْرَاهِيمَ حَنِيفًا Allah tells the messenger وسلم, make sure you follow the legacy of Ibrahim حَنِيفًا who was solely dedicated to Allah solely dedicated to Allah Azza so this was the overview that I wanted to spend time sharing with you today I want to only do this part this time inshallah ta'ala and from, from next week on we'll tackle one of these surahs every week hopefully maybe I'll try to squeeze in two if I can but probably we'll only stick to one a week inshallah ta'ala and over the next 10 weeks cover all 10 of these surahs barakallahu li wa lakum fil quran al-hakim wa nafa'ni wa iyaakum bil ayati wa dhikr al-hakim wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah post-world war divisions but before this, Syria is one large region. So from a historical and ancient point of view, the Arab world can be divided into three parts. Specifically the Arab world. We're not talking about Europe and Africa now. Just the Arab world. It can be divided into the Iraq and its you know, uh, peripheral uh, regions. And then there's Sham. And we talked about what Sham and Syria, what that represents. And then there's a separate sort of cut-off peninsula. And that is Al-Jazeera. Which nowadays we call it Gulf. But when we use Gulf nowadays, we're referring to some Gulf states, Saudi Arabia and you know, some of these regions. But the Gulf of the old times, the Jazeera of the old times is a much wider you know, geographical region, almost a triangle, which meets seas on three sides. Not four sides, but on three sides. And it includes Yemen. Nonetheless, Yemen is kind of cut off. It's, it's there, but it's not too connected. It's a little bit to the side, and that becomes important historically, as we will see also. So now... For a great period in history, Yemen controlled, and the, the rule of Saba controlled uh, the trade between Europe and the rest of the world, and between Asia and the rest of the world. This was the, this was the avenue by which they would have to go. Their ports were of strategic importance. So this was what gave them their economic strength and also their political importance. Because when you're important strategically, economically, right, then your political power also rises. So this was one of the, the main means by which they had their importance. Now the Great Flood occurs once again around the year 450 and 451, and what happens to them as a civilization? It's collapsed. That economy is gone. And the ports are destroyed. Now that pretty much everything they had going from themselves is finished. So that, ro- that route that used to be for trade is no longer. Now there are other means by which route this, this travel needs to take place. Now this is a little bit of background on the Yemen side. How is this connected to Arabia? A lot of Arabs, or Yemenis or Arabs also, they left that region. And they started traveling to other parts of the Arab world. And they started settling as tribes in different places. Now this, Arab, Yemenis have been traveling for a long time. Some narrations even say that the first tribe that came with Ismail alayhi salam way before this, you know, when they, when they saw the water, Right? That was also a Yemeni tribe originally. 
So they've been traveling and leaving Yemen for other travels within the Arab world for a long time already. But this was a major exodus because of the economic downfall in that region. By the way, Aus and Khazraj also historically happened to be tribes that left Yemen for economic reasons and settled in Medina. So they're also, you know, their history is traced back to that original um, exodus. Now, in the meantime, in the rest of Arabia, especially in the land of Hijaz, the children of Ibrahim salam, through the lineage of which messenger? Ismail they're settling in different places. They're not all in Mecca. He made dua for them in Mecca, this is true. But they were dispersed all over Arabia. They were not in one place. And about a hundred, this is around the same time that this collapse took place, there's a historical figure we learn about in, uh, you know, in the books of history. Ibn Khaldun mentions him in detail. His name is Uthay ibn Kalam. And he was a leader among the Arabs who was from the family of Ismail salam. And he makes a call to the children of Ismail, the Arabs, to unify and to move to Mecca. To make it a central city from which they can establish some sort, some makings of a state. Now the Arab concept of state is not the same as the Roman concept of state, or the Persian concept of state, or even what we consider state in our terms. But they're saying Arabs are Bedouins, they're dispersed, let's unify our family forces, settle them together in one place and become one blocked strength and formed something like a state. This was the call that he made, and he was a very charismatic leader, so he was able to do this uh, very, very quickly. When he, he, by the way, is born in the year 400. So he's born about 550 years before that great flood happens in another part of the world, which is in Yemen. Now, he historically is called Al-Mujammi'. That's the title he was given historically. Why? Mujammi' means the one who caused gathering, who made gathering happen. Right? He allowed for all the Arabs that were dispersed, the children of Ismail to, to commune and to gather where? Which city now? In Mecca. Mecca already had a population, but very small. But now it starts becoming more centralized and gets, starts getting populated. Now, this man, Uthay, has three sons. And one of the most popular of his sons, the most famous of his sons, his name is Abd Munaf. And Abd Munaf, after he dies, he starts taking a role of leadership in Mecca. And he, Abd Munaf has, again, his son had four of his sons. So now we're talking about the grandsons of the great gatherer, right? And who are his grandsons? Those are Hashim, Muttalib, Abd shams and Nawfal. These are four sons. Once again, Hashim, Muttalib, Abd shams and Nawfal. Hashim is born in the year 464. So is that before the flood or after the flood? That's after the flood. Flood was 450 if you remember, right? So he's born after the flood. And, you know, so this is about almost a little over a decade after there's a vacuum, there's an economic vacuum that takes place, right? And Hashim is born. Now as Hashim grows up, he feels that there is this economic vacuum and the Meccans may be in a position to take advantage of that vacuum and call attention of these other neighboring empires to start making trade agreements with Mecca. And he sees this as, as an opportunity because there's no competitor. The competitor would have been the, you know, Yemen and they're basically collapsed. They don't have that position anymore. And a lot of very powerful you know, uh, traders from Yemen have already left the region because they couldn't survive there anymore economically. So he, sent, he goes himself to Sham and speaks to the ruler, Ghassani is called. And he sends his brother Abd shams to Habasha. He sends Nawfal to Iraq and even uh, sent one of his brothers to Yemen. So in other words, every neighboring empire, he's going and he's trying to make trade agreements with them. So now they look at Mecca as a port to do trade. The selling point for Mecca is the Arabs generally have respect for Mecca. 
idolatrous as they may be, they actually had accepted Mecca as the house built by Allah. Even if they're doing shirk, they still had it in their tradition, their lineage, that this is the house of Allah. So it already, as the, in the culture of that land, in Hijaz and you know, even further down in the plains, this was already understood as a religious capital. So they said, it's already a religious capital, why don't we try and make it also an economic capital, and try to use that strategically to our advantage. Now when they, uh, these four brothers made these agreements, and these are, you know, the word for agreement, this is important now, the word for agreement is ilaf. And these four brothers who went and made agreements, they're called ashab al-ilaf. The people of those agreements, the trade agreements. Why is that word important? What does it remind you of? Li'ilafi Quraysh. So there's a, there's a historical connection between the term used for them and what we're going to be learning in Surat Quraysh. That's, that's where that's going to become important. Another name for them was also Al-Muttajireen, which means the traitors. Now Hashim, Hashim was one of those four brothers. Hashim has a son named Abdul Muttalib, born uh, approximately 457 according to most historians. Abdul Muttalib has a son named Abdullah. Abdullah has Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa so now we have this timeline and connected to this Hashim being one of the key figures who was involved in the revival of Mecca as an economic power and, and bringing it to fruition. Now, in the meantime, now we're going to look at another place. So we looked at some history of Yemen while this is happening. We looked at some history of what's happening in Hijaz itself. Now we're going to look at what's happening in the Christian world, in the Roman world. In the year 300 after Isa in the Christian calendar, the Roman Empire accepts as an official state religion, Christianity. Christianity becomes the official state religion. But the Roman Empire isn't limited to Rome. They include parts of Western Asia, what we call Turkey nowadays, parts of Egypt. They include underneath them Sudan and even Ethiopia, and those are also Christian regions at this time. And actually a good part of Habasha was Christian, and a part of Yemen was also Christian originally. In a brief era in between, the Yemenis had a rebellion and they became a Jewish empire. And when they became a Jewish empire for a brief period, this is the time when they started oppressing Christians. And since they're very close to Habasha, I told you they're kind of disconnected, the Yemenis are disconnected from the Arabs, but from a map, they're very close to Ethiopia, to Habasha. And Habasha is what religion? They're Christian. And they became briefly Jewish. And when they did, their rulers started offending or, or, or uh, oppressing the Christians. Some argue that these is, this may even include Ashabul Ukhdud, those among the Christians who were Muwahidun and whatnot. Some argue that that happened in that region of Yemen. But when the Abyssinians see, when the Habashis see, and the Ethiopians even see, that the Christians are being oppressed, they move in to Yemen. And they actually invaded. And they, actually, they, they set up a king from among the Christian Yemeni community. And Yemen becomes a Christian region once again. Over time though, very quickly, within Yemen there's infighting. It's political problems, right? Who are they connected to politically now, Yemen? They're connected to Habasha. But they're not really an, a colony of Habasha. They're left alone. They, they brought Christian rule back and left. So Yemenis are ruling themselves. They're autonomous. But what happens is, there's a military coup. Abraha used to be a general. And he fights against his own king, takes him over, and becomes the new king. And he keeps ties. He tells, since Habasha would be alarmed, he tells Habasha, no, 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 I'm not against you. I just wanted to have this region under my control, and I didn't think the previous administration was running things like, but I want to keep ties and allegiance with you. It became weaker than before, but the ties remain. Now this is important, the Christian allegiance that we're going to come back to. Now, Yemen... You know, the, the, the rulers, 
One of the ways they uh, retain their power and the one of the things that makes them build the people's allegiance to them is they remind people of what a great nation they are and how they need to return back to the greatness. So what is Abraha reminded of? He's reminded of the days when Yemen used to be the center of trade before the flood. But after the flood, who took advantage of the vacuum? The Quraysh did. And all the trade moved through Quraysh. So now Abraha decides he's going to build what's called Al-Qulays. This is a huge shrine which he wanted to make as an alternative. It was a Christian place of worship, but he wanted to make it as an alternative place of, of center. And it, it said that he used the most expensive equipment and you know, building materials and exotic items to build this huge monument and, and building uh, really a shrine and temple. But he, and he, his hope was it, was it would undermine the value of Makkah. It's a much more elaborate and glorious place to come. Now he thought because it's more interesting that people will come. But people didn't go to Makkah because they found it in a tourist attraction. What was the attraction in Makkah? It was religious. And you can't change people's religious sentiments overnight. So he gets really upset that he's exhausted all these resources into building this huge thing, and it's not getting any traffic. No, no trade has changed. So he writes a letter to the king of Habasha. And he says, until the Kaaba is destroyed, we're not going to have any attention in our region, in Yemen. So you need to help us. Now when he writes this letter, the uh, Arabs get word of it. The Arabs hear about it. And when they hear about it, what do they do? They, they're very upset that this conversation is even taking place. So some of the Arabs that were a little crazier than the others, there are several narrations. One of them is they burnt the place down. They went to, they, they went to, to Yemen and they burnt the, you know, the Qulays down. They burnt that building down. But another more popular narration is that they went there and they secretly entered it and they basically defecated in it, right? And they violated the place and they left. And this was their statement of, you know, this is what we think of your Kaaba, so to speak. Right? And Abraha sees this and this is insult to injury. He's already thinking about attacking. And now he has all the more reason. And now he can actually think about it in a political science point of view. If they have attacked you or if they've insulted you, is it easier to rally the troops and gather the people in your favor? So he sees this as an opportunity to rally everybody and go after the Kaaba. But historically we learned he was already interested in destroying the Kaaba. This is important to note. A lot of times when we study this history, without studying it carefully, we think that his motivations were religious. Right? But we have to understand the world works in, in strange ways. Maybe he has some religious aspirations in there. But what does it seem when you study the history carefully? What seems to be the case? His aspirations are political and economic. He wants his nation to be the center of trade once again. And he sees Quraysh now as this formidable competitor. Also he realizes we have a huge army and we're backed by the Ethiopians. Who's, who's, back, who's back in the Meccans? Nobody. So we could do this without a problem. This would not be an issue, right? So he's, he gathers his troops. Now there are several narrations about how many. The least number that we have is 12,000. The biggest number historic in history books is 60,000. So we'll say between 12 and 60,000 troops are now summoned, and they're heading out. And with them are between 9 and 12, 9 to 13 actually elephants. There's, only, there's one elephant that was really famous among them, his name is Mahmoud. They say he was, he was a colossal elephant, and he was sort of leading uh, the pact. So they make their way out. Now, as they go towards, they make progress, they head towards Ta'if. When they get to Ta'if, the Ta'if people, they don't fight them. They say, we're ready to negotiate with you. Now it's important to note, why would Ta'if want to negotiate with them? 
The rest of the Arabs would not want to negotiate with them because they're false gods, they're idols. Where are they stationed? They're in Mecca. And that's important. You know why nobody would attack Quraysh? Because Quraysh is holding all of their idols. If you attack them, they're gonna go back home and do what to your idol? They're gonna break it. But Ta'if used to worship the false god Lat. And they kept the idol in Ta'if. They didn't have the idol in, at the Haram, they had it in Ta'if. So they didn't care if it gets destroyed. They didn't, it wasn't a big deal to them. So they start making a deal. They cut a deal, they say, we have no beef with you, actually we'll help you. The tribe of Thaqif specifically. They said, we'll help you. They appointed a guy, uh, um, a navigator named Abu Rigal. And his job was, because the way from Ta'if to Mecca is complicated, I will guide your troops all the way to Mecca without a problem. So they even get, get a snitch to go from Ta'if to go and destroy Mecca, an Arab who's going to help them kill other Arabs, right? Abu Rigal ha- happened to die on the way. He died on the way, and he was buried on the way. And this is actually, this became a monument. Arabs would go there and spit and curse and like throw pebbles at his grave and stuff, because he was a historical sellout. And he sold the location of Mecca and directions to Mecca out to the army of Abraha. Anyhow, so he gets there in the month of Muharram, by the way. Uh, Abraha gets to the region in the month of Muharram. Now this backdrop is very important. Why is this backdrop important? Because when we study this surah, and Allah Azza wa tells us, "Alam tara kaifa," which is our job next week, inshallah ta'ala, is to study the words of the surah. Today, my focus was just history, and why this history is important. This history is important, first of all, to note that the reasons why Mecca was attacked were there's political sentiments in there, there are economic sentiments in there. This is important to note. Now, if you look at Surah Al-Fil. Allah Azza wa Jal talks about the political and the military safety of Mecca. And when you look at Quraysh, Allah talks about, so Quraysh, Allah talks about the economic security of Mecca. These two different aspects of the security of Mecca are going to be dealt with in these surahs. Now, today, inshallah ta'ala, I'm going to be very brief uh, and just talk about, you know, a sprinkling of aspects of the surah, but really the, our focus will be, inshallah ta'ala, next week on the word by word analysis of the surah. Uh, just a, but at least a sprinkling of items today, inshallah ta'ala. Number one uh, is the issue of alam tara. Uh, did you see? Did you not see? Is how it's translated. Did you not see? This is uh, a figure of speech in Arabic. First of all, it's in the singular. In English, that's kind of hard to spot because if, had we said alam tara or alam tara, the English translation would still say, did you not see? Because for English, the word you is both singular or plural, it doesn't make a difference. But in Arabic, alam tara is when you're talking to one, alam tarau is when you're talking to a lot. So it makes a difference, right? Now this is singular. This made a debate among the mufassirun, whether is this talking to the messenger wasallam, or is it talking to each and every individual who is being asked to, res- to reflect. Now there are evidences for both. There are evidences for both. For example, وَقَضَى رَبُّكَ أَلَّا تَعْبُدُوا إِلَّا إِيَّاهُ وَبِالْوَالِدِينِ إِحْسَانًا your master declared that you should worship none except he, and you should be the best to both parents. Now that you in that ayah is singular. But the messenger doesn't have what? He doesn't have both parents. So who's the ayah talking to even though it's you singular? It's talking to human beings, the rest of us, right? So there's precedence for the you singular in the Qur'an being used for the messenger and also for other than the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa but the singular implies, the rhetorical function of that is, because this is not an ancient event, this is a very recent event. And perhaps a lot of the people who saw this happen in front of them, 
right? This, they were eyewitnesses to this. They are being asked to remember it one at a time. Each and every individual in the town can testify to what happened. Alam tara. So that's one way of looking at it. Another is that the messenger is being asked, Alam tara, which makes it a little more difficult to interpret. Because if you say to the messenger, did you not see how your master dealt with the people of the elephant? Well, there's only one problem. He didn't, because he was born when? He was born after. Then you understand alam tara in a figurative sense. In other words, did you not reflect upon? Did you not realize? Have you not heard enough times? Have you not full, you know, see, uh, heard full depictions of how Allah protected the city as you were growing up even? In other words, the Quraysh were so amazed at this event. And what happened really is very, very amazing that you could imagine that they talked about this all the time. And, it, and so much so that actually the Arabs didn't have a calendar. Like the Christians have a calendar revolving around what? The alleged death of Christ, right? That's what their calendar revolves around. The Arabs didn't have a calendar. And guess what their calendar became? Amal fil. So and so happened 10 years before Amal fil. Such and so happened 10 years after Amal fil. Their, their point of reference became this, right? So this is something that was talked about. All the time, as though, you know, uh, given the vivid nature of the language, people could even imagine what happened. So that's one way of looking at alam tara. But then there's the word kayfa. And the word kayfa is very important. Because it alludes to yufidu ta'jib. How can Allah do that? How did your master deal with them? If you look at the army and the size of it, the size of the army is greater than the population of Makkah. You know, it's the size of the army is greater than the civilian population, what to speak of the military population. It is such an impossible scenario that this situation would be resolved peacefully without the loss of civilian life. It's impossible in history to imagine an event where such a massive army would come against a town which doesn't even have a population of soldiers to defend themselves. And even if they did, they've never seen an elephant, which is the ancient tank. Right? It's the tank of back in the day. And they have you know, a dozen elephants, which is more than enough to basically destroy the entire town. Keep in mind, they don't have brick architecture. Elephants can literally run the huts over. They could, you could flatten the entire city. In such an impossible scenario, how can it be, if not by the work of the Master of the Lord, that this city's peace would be retained? So the word kayfa in the ayah becomes very important. That, that, you know, didn't you realize how this could happen if not for Allah Azza wa Did you not realize this cannot be just some random accident? Did you not realize that someone is taking care of the city? Even in face of Ashab al-Feel, the most vicious of armies, the most you know, well-prepared, well-equipped of armies. So that's really the point at which I'm going to conclude today inshallah ta'ala, is the reflection and some benefits of just the phrase, alam tara. Inshallah ta'ala, we'll conclude the study of this surah and probably even get into the study of the next surah in our next session, Surah Quraysh, and tie the two together and do a word-by-word analysis because we don't need a separate historical analysis for Surah Quraysh now because we understand the, the, the scene that is set uh, historically. So we'll deal with the surahs, both of them, inshallah ta'ala, at the same time. Barakallahu li walakum fil Qur'an al-Hakim wa nafa'ni wa iyyakum bil ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ألم تر كيف فعل ربك بأصحاب الفيل ألم يجعل كيدهم في تضليل وأرسل عليهم طيرا أبابيل ترميهم بحجارة من سجيل 
فجعلهم كعصف مأكول رب اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي والحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد الأنبياء والمرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه ومن استنى بسنته إلى يوم الدين اللهم اجعلنا منهم ومن الذين آمنوا وعملوا الصالحات وتواصوا بالحق وتواصوا بالصبر واللهم ثبتنا عند الموت بلا إله إلا الله أمين يا رب العالمين ثم أما بعد uh, Inshallah ta'ala we're meeting now for the third time to discuss Surah Al-Fil The first time we did a comprehensive overview of the connections between the surahs The series of surahs beginning with Surah Al-Fil all the way to the end of the Mus'haf The next session which was last week We talked about a historical background that is important to remember before we get into the contents of Surah Al-Fil itself. And today, inshallah ta'ala, as we discuss the word-by-word analysis and the overview of the surah in light of the insights of scholars of the past, inshallah, when we study their insights, we will see why that analysis is important and why that background plays a central role in developing a good understanding of this remarkable surah. So we begin, inshallah ta'ala, with, a, with an interesting comment. This is made by Dr. Fadl Salih Hassam al-Ra'i. Hiya suratun fiha ibratun li kulli taghiyatin mutakabbirin mutajabbir fi kulli al-usur wal-azman. He says, this surah has a warning and a lesson for every, for every rebellious, arrogant, uh, tyrant that lives in any age, in any time, in any civilization, any nation. So he says this is not just a surah talking about the oppression of Abraha against the Kaaba. This is sending a message to anyone who hopes to uh, you know, wreak havoc upon civilian populations and overpower a, one, a nation or a ruler trying to overpower another nation by means of their military might with the understanding what are they going to do to fight against this. They have no military capability to stand up to us. And with that you know, assumption, with that arrogant assumption, they go in and they don't care about the consequences. You know, when a, when a society is not in power, they talk about the rule of law. And they call people to abide by the rule of law. But when the society has power, they say the law is for everyone else. And we are above the law, we're beyond the law. And the law would apply, it's a nice thing to apply to, but we have a special situation. And who's going to stop them, even if they trample all over the law and the regulations, they're the most powerful you know, civilization, who's going who's gonna to question them? Who's going to question their oppression? And this is something that has happened throughout history. It's not difficult to see examples of that even in our time. But this is something that, you know, the, the surah is uh, alluding to. Now he gives reasons why he thinks this is the case in the surah, why we shouldn't limit it to a discussion only of the historical accounts, which of course are critical. tara. This is why the verb tara came, alam tara. Now there are different ways of saying this. The first part of the ayah roughly translated is, didn't you see? That's the first part, didn't you see? Common translations will read, didn't you see how your Lord dealt with the people of the elephant? This is probably a common translation you've heard before. But he's commenting only on the first phrase, alam tara, and specifically the verb to see. That's been used in the present tense. بِصِيغَةِ الْمُضَارِعِ and the specific use of that, now in English translation, it comes out as past tense, right? Alam tara, it comes out as, didn't you see? And clearly, if you understand English, that's past tense. But in Arabic, there's a rhetorical function here. And as opposed to saying, amara aita, right? You could use the past tense function also, but that wasn't used. When that's used, the past tense, it alludes to something continuous in Arabic rhetoric, in, in balagha, in linguistics. It re- refers to something that didn't happen once, that happens over and over again. And this surah from a linguistics point of view, we'll, we'll l- learn something amazing about this surah. How the change of tenses 
carry amazing lessons in them. So that use just of the mudari', the present future tense in the Arabic, with the word lam, regardless of the presence of the word lam, indicates that this is not just something to observe and think about for that time, but for all time. Two more benefits. Alam tara fiha dalalatan lughwiyatan. In the phrase alam tara, there are two, two further uh, evidences and benefits. فَقَدْ تَكُونُ اسْتِفْهَامَ عَنِ الرُّؤْيَةِ الْقَلْبِيَةِ وَالْبَصَرِيَةِ بِمَعْنَى أَلَمْ تَرَى فُلَانٍ It could be referring to something you see physically or something you remember in your heart or something you can visualize. You know, so didn't you see, it could be taken literally, literally. But didn't you see can also be taken figuratively. And figuratively, even in English, it's the same exact way it's understood in classical Arabic. What that is is, didn't you see how people in the past were destroyed. Now, when, you, when I say that to you, didn't you see that the nation of Ad and Thamud, etc., etc., were de- destroyed? I don't claim that you were there watching it happen when I say, didn't you see? But what I mean by that is, didn't you think about it? Didn't you realize? Haven't you thought? Haven't you heard enough of the news already? You understand? So when you, see, when you use the word seeing sometimes, you don't mean it literally, you mean it Figuratively, Even when somebody is explaining something to you, at the end of it you say, ah, I see. And you're on the phone, you don't see anything. Right? And they explain something to you, they say, oh, I see. Right? So you're using the word, but not in a literal sense, but in a figurative sense. Why is that important? Because this alam tara, this question, according to the majority of Mufassirun, has been posed to the Messenger of Allah wasallam. So obviously he, he didn't see the elephant army come. He wasn't there actually, he was according to most accounts, as we mentioned last time, born at least 50 days after the event, in the same year, but at least 50 days after. So clearly he didn't see this event, but he's heard it over and over again as we will see, or heard about this event over and over again, as we will see in the commentary of the Mufassirun. So the second rhetorical benefit, أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ تَكُونُ بِمَعْنَى التَّعْجِيبِ بِمَعْنَى أَلَمْ يَنْتَهِي you know, it produces the meaning of creating a shock. Didn't you realize? Haven't you thought about? You know, when somebody talks to you like that, they're trying to evoke emotions in you. And that is what Allah Azza wa Jalla is doing for His Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when He talks to him that way. Now here we have to understand something incredible about the Qur'an's discourse and iltifat. I know this is a lot of heavy terminology, but I'll make it as simple as I can. Iltifat refers to the transitions in the Qur'an. Sometimes Allah is talking to the Messenger ﷺ. Other times He's talking to all of humanity. Other times He's talking to disbelievers. Other times He's telling the Prophet what to tell them. Right? He, te- he doesn't want to tell them directly, He tells the Prophet to tell them. Qul, tell them. Right? He doesn't tell them directly, He tells His Messenger to tell them. Right? Sometimes He's talking to Ya Ahlul Kitab. Sometimes Ya Bani Israel. Sometimes Ya Ayyuhalladheena Amanu. You understand? There are different audiences. But now in this surah, who's the audience? The messenger is being told. The messenger is being told. But the Qur'an is to be recited. So even though the messenger is being told, وسلم, who else can hear? The kuffar can. The disbelievers can. And they realize two things as this conversation is happening. One, that Allah is speaking to His messenger, والسلام, and two, that He's talking about an event that they themselves saw. Maybe He didn't see, but according to most narrations, a good chunk of the population that was there at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, especially the elders of Quraysh, they actually remembered the eye account, the physical account of what happened. So when, when these accounts are being given, two things are being learned. One, the, the messenger is being talked to while acknowledging that the kuffar can hear what's being said. 
So th these two things are important. Now we look at uh, some commentary by Shawkani rahimahullah. وَهُوَ تَعْجِبُ لَهُ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ بِمَا فَعْلَهُ اللَّهُ And this is to, to give the messenger in a sense of amazement and wonder in regards to what Allah Himself did with the people of the elephant. As though he is saying, قَدْ عَلِمْتَ يَا مُحَمَّدِ You already know Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. أَوْ عَلِمَ Or the people who are present in your time, they also know very very well. وَمِنْ بَعْدِهِمْ And even the people that came after them, بِمَا بَلَغَهُمْ مِنَ الْأَخْبَارِ الْمُتَوَاتِرَةِ مِنْ قِصَّةِ أَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Because of what came to them from continuous narratives and narrations and people telling the story over and over again of the story of the elephant. Now it's important to know, why is this, why would the people know about the story of the elephant? Why would it be so popular? Well, the entire city had to be evacuated. Right? They had to go up in the mountains. And this city was going to be finished. And the Arabs, I told you last time, they didn't keep regular calendar. So you know after this incident, you know what they used to say? Oh, such and such thing happened two years after Am al-Fil. Or a year you know, before Am al-Fil. In other words, their calendar became the year of the elephant. This was such an important thing to them, that the entire calendar revolved around it. And they would tell their children this story. And of course, you know that the Quraysh lived off of the importance of the Kaaba. So this became somewhat of a religious justification for you know, even giving the Kaaba more reverence. Look how Allah protected you know the, it, by this this kharafa, this unusual, unnatural, paranormal activity. You know, in, in this way, He protected this Kaaba. Look at how that happened. So they would use that as justification for their legitimacy of having the Kaaba as the center of the religion, even though they they had they had introduced paganism in there. وَمَا فَعَلَ اللَّهُ بِهِمْ فَمَا لَكُمْ لَا تُؤْمِنُونَ. This is the last part of Shaukani's commentary. He said, just in the alam tara kaifa. Allah Azza wa it is as though He's saying, didn't you realize what Allah does to His enemies? So what's wrong with you? Why don't you believe in Him? You're using that to take pride in how Allah protected His house. Then what's, you know, why don't you take that next step towards Iman? Then this Hamza, this, you know, putting this statement in the form of a question. وَالْحَمْزَةُ لِلتَّقْرِيرِ كَأَنَّهُ قِيلُ قَدْ جَعَلَ كَيْدَهُمْ فِي تَضْلِيلُ you know, قَدْ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ So this, you know, putting it in the form of a question, didn't you see how your master, how your Lord dealt with the people of the elephant? When it's put in the form of a question, what's the purpose of that? Is to give emphasis to it. And I don't want to just use the word emphasis, you know, casually, because there are so many things in Arabic for emphasis. So I want to be careful and, and precise. What it, this does is it evokes the conscience of someone who's been done a favor. That's what the rhetorical question is used for the most part. In other words, I'm talking to you and I say, didn't I help you last year? Now there, one way of saying it is, I helped you last year. That's one way of saying it. But if I really want to make you feel bad, you know what I would say? Didn't I help you last year? You know what that suggests to the listener? It seems as though you have forgotten what I did for you last year. So I'm going to put it in the form of a question, because from your attitude it seems that you've forgotten. Right? So I'm going to put it in the form of a question. And that's what Allah Azza wa does. أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Now again, we have to understand, this question is directed at two parties. One party is the messenger himself, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So we have to understand why Allah would ask his messenger this question. The other is indirectly, this question is being posed to the kuffar. Now the, the fact that the question is being posed to the kuffar is easy to understand. They clearly haven't appreciated this favor that Allah had done them because they're still openly committing the crime of shirk. And they've polluted the house of Allah with idols. But how do we understand this question being posed to the messenger wasallam? Because again, it's done to, to evoke a memory. Well, you see, the, the, the purpose of that is, do you realize how Allah comes to the help of His house? 
and you don't realize that he is your master, he will come to your help also. In other words, the messenger is being given a guarantee of the help and victory from Allah through whatever means it takes. Be it, you know, uh, you know, there may not be any means in front of the messenger. This is a Makki surah, so he has no political power, he has no massive armies, he has no room to negotiate. People laugh at him and spit at him, and you know, people ridicule the people that follow him. So from a social and political point of view, he has no clout. Well, actually add to that, even from an economic point of view, he's not in a very good position. But... But Allah is saying, even though the Meccans were not in a very good position, Allah Azza wa Jal protected that house, and He is the same master you have. So this by extension, the messenger is being, you know, his, he's being given consolation by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَلَمَّا بَلَغَ قَرِيبًا مِّن مَكَّةً Now we're going a little bit into the historical account. We'll go back and forth inshaAllah. When, he, when Abraha reached near Mecca, خَرَجَ إِلَيْهِ عَبْدُ الْمُطَّلِبِ uh, then Abdul Muttalib came to him, He offered him the land of Tahama. We talked about the plains of Tahama last time, if you recall. Abu, uh, Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet ﷺ, tried to negotiate with him sort of a peaceful settlement. And he said, I'll give you the, a third of the revenues of the assets from the treasury of the plains of Tahama. We'll give you that. We're willing to give you all of that. Uh, but he returned because the uh, the armies of uh, Abraha fa'aba he refused wa'aba ajaishahu and he prepared and loaded up his armies as a show of defiance. I don't need your negotiations. Your negotiations mean nothing to me. In other words, he wasn't concerned with making a peaceful settlement. He wanted to make a statement. And this is something again we learn about people or nations and powers that have power over others. No matter how much the other tries to negotiate by peaceful means, they have to make their statement and they don't care at the cost or the, the destruction that will come as a result. Now, Ashabul Fil, you know, the, the common translation, the people of the elephant. The word elephant is singular, but we know from last time also at least 9 to 13 elephants were there. So why not, you know, Afyan? Why not, you know, elephants? Why use the singular? Well, it's used one because the most famous of them was what they were known for. When they say the elephant, it's referring specifically to an elephant whose name is known in Arishans as Mahmud. That was the elephant's name, that, that's what they had called it. It was a behemoth, it was a huge, huge elephant. And so they were famous for that one. So they're the people of the elephant, referring to that specific one. But also, feel is ism jama', which means it's a singular word that can refer to an entire category. Now, if you, wanna, if you look at it from the point of view of ism jama', then your translation is going to be affected in English. You can no longer say the people of the elephant. You're probably more better off saying the elephant people. In other words, people that were identified with the army of the elephant. Now that of in the middle, which is a necessity in Idafa, is something of a literary problem in English, as opposed to the Arabic here. If you look at it as ism jama', the Idafa, what it does is it creates an identification. These people were identified with the army filled with elephants. Now, uh, this, this uh, ashab al-field, this phrase, we're going to come back to in more detail inshallah ta'ala when the time comes. But we still have to answer a couple of other things about the phrase alam tara. So we'll read through my notes inshallah. Al-awwal. Lima qal alam tara ma'a anna hadhihi al-waqi'a waqa'at qabla al-mab'ath bizamanin tawil. How come he said, didn't you see, even though this event occurred a long time ago, even before the appointment of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, bizamanin tawil, a long time ago. Al-murad min al-ru'ya Al-ilm wa tazkir. The purpose of saying didn't you see, the purpose of mentioning seeing is two things, knowledge and reminder. And it's, that's exactly the case. Don't you know what happened? It's another way of saying it. Didn't you see is another way of saying, don't you know what happened? So knowledge. And reminder, have you forgotten what happened? Wa tazkir. 
These are the two purposes of it. And it indicates, it seems to indicate this language that the news of this event was flowing continuously among the people. This was a common narrative. فَكَانَ الْعِلْمُ الْحَاصِلْ بِهِ ضُرُورِيًّا مُسَاوِيًّا فِي الْقُوَّةِ وَالْجَلَاءِ لِلْرُؤْيَةِ And this acquired knowledge, is, it's, it's more powerful to mention it in this way, which is what we talked about before, than simply mentioning, didn't you know? وَلِهَذَا السَّبَبْ قَالَ لِغَيْرِهِ عَلَى سَبِيلِ الذَّمْ And this is why the same tone, didn't you see, is used in the Qur'an for condemnation. So he's going to give some examples from the Qur'an, other places where Allah uses the, the verb, أَلَمْ تَرَى Didn't you see? And also in those cases there's condemnation. أَلَمْ يَرَوْ كَمْ أَهْلَكْنَا قَبْلَهُمْ مِنَ الْقُرُونَ Allah says, didn't you see? How many times have we destroyed much before them from all different kinds of towns? أَلَمْ تَعْلَمْ أَنَّ اللَّهَ عَلَى كُلِّ شَيْءٍ قَدِيرٌ Didn't you know that Allah is in complete control over all things? So this أَلَمْ يَعْلَمْ أَلَمْ تَعْلَمْ is kind of has a zajr in it, a sort of a scolding in it, a strong language in it, or a strong consolation in it. Now we read something from Tafsir al-Wasit. This was actually a contemporary Tafsir. It was written, the full name of it is Tafsir al-Wasit. Fi Tafsir al-Qur'an al-Kareem. It was written by Shaykh Nima Tantawi rahimahullah. Uh, not the current Tantawi, this is an older Tantawi, rahimahullah. And this was uh, published in 1928. Brilliant tafsir. وَأَوْقَعَ سُبْحَانَهُ الْإِسْتِفْهَامِ And the, 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 messenger, the, the messenger, actually not the messenger, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala placed the question word عَنِ الْكَيْفِيَةِ And he placed the question in the way of saying how مَا أَنزَلَهُ بِهِمْ Saying not just what he did with them, but how he did with them. لَا عَنِ الْفِعِلِ Allah didn't just say what he did with them, he asked the question how he dealt with them. So he's making a distinction between what did Allah do as opposed to how did Allah do. Now the surah is talking about not what Allah did, but how Allah did. Kaifa. The Arabic word is kaifa. He's saying the benefit of kaifa in the ayah is it illustrates the what Allah did in far more detail. What did you do? I ate. How did you eat? Now you're asking for a lot of details, right? So when you ask the word kayfa, it requires a more detailed response. But if you ask the word ma, what did your Lord do? It could be a one word response, He destroyed, He killed, He got rid of them. But the word how, it necessitates these demands and also illustrates the power of Allah in more explicit detail. The second question, أَلَمْ تَرَى كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ This actually we, we covered, uh, move to the next uh, question. And by the way, as an indication of that, the, the importance of the word kayfa, it's used for amazement. In other words, these Arabs are being made to think, how could that be? Just think about that. How could it be that an army of elephants would show up at your borders and you have no armies to defend them and no harm comes to you? No, none whatsoever. And even when the plague hits, we'll talk about the plague that came as a result of the corpses rotting. There was a plague in Arabia. And even the plague hit, it only hit those of the army of Abraha. And by the way, when you, you, know, you send a delegation or armies or soldiers and they die abroad, when they die abroad, the nation who sent them gets enraged and sends another army after them. That's what normally happens. Right? Because our sons died on the other side, we're going to go avenge them. But actually, Abraha survived. He didn't die in Arabia. He actually made it all the way back to Yemen. <coughs> and by the time he got back, the, the pebbles that had hit them, the sijil, Hijarat ibn sijil that's coming in the surah, it caused a disease of the skin on him that was peeling his skin off, literally burning it off. 
So the, the, the Yemeni people saw this mutilated form of Abraha, which terrified them of the idea of ever going back to Mecca again. Because they said, even if we can kill those people, we're gonna get disease and get killed like this guy. So it was an amazing plan from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The very thing that would have enraged the Yemeni empire even more, was a means by which they were completely deterred forever. But more on that inshallah ta'ala a little bit later. Just on the word how again, how amazing this plan was. Because Allah mentions the word how, not what. The same thing He does. أَفَلَمْ يَنظُرُوا إِلَى السَّمَاءِ فَوْقَهُمْ كَيْفَ بَنَيْنَاهَا Didn't you look at the sky? Didn't they look at the sky above them? Stare at it? Not just what He created, كَيْفَ بَنَاهَا How did He make it? How could that be created? How could that be designed? Now think about that, a construction project, right? A construction project. How did they make this building? My God, it's amazing. I come from New York. Our masjids are very small. right? We have like one big masjid. And that's because it was funded from abroad. We don't have that kind of money. You know, the, kind, the, the, the amount of money it takes to buy a house in Texas, you can buy a bathroom in New York, right? So it's a different economy. So you, go, you come from Texas. I came from New York the first time with my brother-in-law. And we came and we pulled into the parking lot of the Irving Mush. And we're like, how did they do this? <laughs> we're amazed at the construction project. How is this possible? In America? Wow! <laughs> right? This idea of how, so Allah is asking the question about His construction of the sky, the horizons, the expansive universe. By the way, as-sama doesn't just mean sky, that's a shallow translation. Sama means everything above. Everything above. Whatever lies above you, have you wondered what kind of architectural plans are involved in the construction of this universe that lies above you and hovers above you? Subhanallah. Kaifa. It's used to, to inspire amazement in the one that is being spoken to. وَلَا شَكَّ أَنَّ هَذِهِ الْوَاقِعَةِ كَانَتْ دَالَّةً عَلَىٰ قُدْرَةِ الصَّانِعِ There is no doubt about it that this incident was clearly a proof of the power of the manufacturer, the creator. وَعِلْمَهُ وَحِكْمَتَهُ And his knowledge and his wisdom. وَكَانَتْ دَالَّةً عَلَىٰ شَرْفِ مُحَمَّدٍ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم. Now we're coming to a new topic. And this incident is also a proof of the honor, the nobility of the Prophet why would this be a proof of the honor of the Prophet? And that is because in our opinion, in our religion, it is known that miraculous things occur before the time of the appointment of a messenger. Right before a messenger is appointed, miraculous things start happening, and this is one of the great miraculous things. That ceases لِنُبُوَّتِهِمْ as a confirmation and an indication of their prophethood. وَإِرْسَاهَا لَهَا وَلِذَلِكَ قَالُوا كَانَتِ الْغَمَامَةِ تَظِلُّهُ And that's how they, that, that is why they say the clouds used to cast shadow over him. Right? In other words, even that, the clouds would follow him miraculously, and the, you, know, the, you know about the narrations of the plants making sajda and things like that. But even before his birth, a huge mu'jiza to indicate this, this amazing event that is coming. Now we're going to look at some poetry of Abdul Muttalib in response to this incident. Now you would say, I mean, he's the head of the town, they're about to tear his city up, and he's making poetry. Well, let me, let me explain something to you. Poetry in Arabia was a means of actually uh, uh, supplication. And actually when we study this poem, we'll see he's actually talking to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's making dua to Allah in this poem, in this very poetic fashion. So it's really a poetic prayer is what is narrated in the books of Tafsir. There is no doubt about it. There's a man who has the intent of 
wreaking havoc in, in it, meaning in it, the Kaaba, the bait, the bait of Allah. And he wants to wreak havoc in it and he wants to destroy it. Then keep him from your halal. It's a very interesting language. You know what the house is called? Al-Bayt al-Haram, right? And he says it's haram for everyone else. Who is it halal for? You. That house that is only permissible for you and for everyone else, it's sanctified, it's haram. That house, you can, you're the only one who can prevent them from attacking it. Wansur ala al salib And help <coughs> against the people of the crucifix. Why? Because Abraha and his armies, remember that? They were Christian influence from Habasha. And they actually got the elephants from Habasha, from Africa. So he's saying the, the people of the crucifix. Wa'abidihi and the people who worship it. Al-Yawma, help them today. Alak, help your own people against the people of the crucifix and those who worship that crucifix. Okay? So he's saying, we are your people, we're the ones who protect your house, help us against them. لا يغلبن صليبهم ومحانهم عدوان or عدوان actually. Their, uh, let not their crucifix or their plans of destruction ever overcome out of animosity, mahalak, your place. This is your, you know, your house and your sanctity. Let them not ever reach this. In kunta tarikahum wa ka'batuna. And if you are going to leave them and you're going to abandon our Kaaba, then fa'mur ma badalak, then do whatever you want. Then it's your, then it's your decision. So this is the statement he made. Then he said another thing, yeah, he made dua against them, but this is the softness of the man, I suppose. Ya Rabb, la arju lahum waka. My master, I don't, I don't wish for them. Wak is used, waka is used in Arabic for, you know, the um, crop season. Crop season, the farmer puts in all his work, and at the end there's harvest. And at that time he's really, really happy. He's saying, I don't wish, har- I don't wish harvest for them. In other words, they put a lot of, clearly they put a lot of labor and planning into getting here to destroy it. But I don't wish ever that they see the fruit of their labor. I don't wish that they, you know, succeed. Ya Rab, famna anhum habaka. Then he says, protect them or, or keep them from attacking those who support you. So that's the prayers or the poetic supplications of Abdul Muttalib. Now we talk a little bit about the use of the word fi'l, which is very important. The, uh, the word fi'l in Arabic, according to Taj al Arus, which is a very famous lexicon of the Arabic language, includes three things Al Amal, of course, action. Al-haraka, movement. Al-hadith, incident, something that occurs. It is used only for tangible things. In other words, you know, it's not used to talk about abstract things. Something physically that occurred, something moved from one to another, then fi'l is used. Okay. The Arabs used it in idioms like bi-fi'li kadha. Uh, meaning بتأثيرها. They would use a verb like, or an expression like bi-fi'li kadha, meaning because of its impact. So the word fi'l was even used in the meaning of impact. Also, fi'lan or bil-fi'l is used in Arabic for, to, to illustrate haqiqatan. In other words, when you say bil-fi'l in Arabic, or fi'lan, it means of course, obviously, truly, or actually. These are, this is the, you know, how it's used. So it, again, referring to something that actually takes place. It's not abstract, it's not in the realm of a hypothetical. So, this fi'l, why not say ja'ala, why not say khalaqa, why not say amila? Well, first of all, the reason for not using ja'ala and khalaqa is that fi'l can actually include both of them. So it's a more comprehensive term. The word is more comprehensive. The second, the, the reason for not using amila is also very interesting. The word amal and fi'l both in, from Arabic to English get translated as action. That's how they both get translated. But amal is actually an action with intent. And fi'l is an action with or without intent. That's one difference between the two. Amal is also an action that takes an effort. And fi'l can be an action that takes 
No effort. And interestingly, in the Qur'an, amal is not used for Allah, but fi'l is used for Allah over and over again, signifying that there is no effort. There is no effort when Allah doesn't act. Efforts are the quality of human beings, right? فَعَالٌ لِمَا يُرِيدٌ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ Right? Same thing here. أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Amal is not used, fi'l is used. Why? Because it's effortless for Allah Azza wa Jal. The other benefit of not using amal is actually, this is from مُخَالِفَ uh, الْمَعْنَى uh, In Arabic rhetoric they say, when you say amal uh, was done, meaning an action was done based on intent, then you're, you're alluding to the fact that other actions may have been done without intent. And that would be in an inappropriate assumption about Allah Azza wa Jal. So amal is not used for that reason. Now, uh, actually, we'll, we'll move forward, forward inshallah ta'ala. And by the way, uh, in uh, Alusi's tafsir, he makes another interesting comment. فَلَوْ ذَكَرَ الْأَلْفَاظِ الثَّلَاثَ لَطَالَ الْكَلَامِ Had he mentioned all three words, the speech would have been prolonged unnaturally. فَذَكَرَ لَفْضًا يَشْمِلُ الْكُلِّ So he mentioned a word that incorporates everything appropriately. So the most comprehensive speech, this is a quality of Qur'an. The most comprehensive speech, little words, this is a surah you've memorized since you were kids. We're spending three sessions on it, when it's like five ayat, very very short. And it's a, you know, it's a Sunday school surah, I call it a Sunday school surah, because it's easy to teach us. You know what happened? Yeah, we already know what happened. There was an elephant thing happened, and you, know, and you pass through it, subhanAllah. But there are just, in every word, there's a treasure embedded. Inside every single word, there's depth, there's wisdom embedded from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So, uh, we covered that, now let's move on to the next question. Now, he used the word, Rabbuka. أَلَمْ تَرَ كَيْفَ فَعَلَ رَبُّكَ He didn't use the word Allah. He didn't use the word Allah. This is important. You see Allah, inshallah when we get time we'll argue, is actually an ism alam. It's a name of Allah. And it includes all the qualities of Allah Azza wa Jalla. If you want to refer to Allah in one word, that refers to every one of His qualities. Ar-Rahman, Ar-Rahim, Al-Malik, Al-Quddus. Every one of them, the only word you can use that refers to all of His qualities would be Allah. But when you use the word Rabb, it signifies one specific attribute. And that attribute is that of being a master and therefore having slaves. That's the, the salient. There are other things inside Rabb. Al-Mun'im, Al-Qayyim, Al-Murabbi, right? Wal-Mu'ti. There are other meanings in Rabb. But the salient feature is master and therefore necessitating the existence of slaves. Why is that important? Because this surah is not just giving you a historical fact. It's telling you that this was done by your master, so you need to act like slaves. This, it's, it, so there's a, there's a conclusion that's being demanded in the language. If you just say Allah, كَيْفَ فَعَلَ اللَّهُ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ Then yes, it's a historical fact, but it's not putting any demands on me. The word Rabb in and of itself is important here because it's placing demands on them. And this is going to become absolutely clear in the next surah, because what does Allah say? فَلْيَعْبُدُوا رَبَّ هَذَا الْبَيْتِ then they should enslave themselves as a consequence to the master of this house. And what reasons did he give in the next surah? الَّذِي أَطْعَمَهُمْ مِنْ جُوعٍ And then, what's the final reason? وَآمَنَهُمْ مِنْ خَوْفٍ He gave them safety against fear. And that, that safety against fear is Suratul Fil. That's what Suratul Fil is about. So Allah is making that demand openly there, but explicit, implicitly in this surah. Now, then, then why say Rabbaka? Now let's look at the word ka here. Ka referring to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, your master. You see in the next surah, he says he's the master of the house. Doesn't he? Rabba hadha al-bayt. But before he mentions his, that he is Rabb of the house that he's willing to protect, he mentions his Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So if he's going to protect the house, but he mentions the house later, who did he mention first? His Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, 
will not his mess, his protection come to the aid of his messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam this is actually a very powerful rhetorical thing because you know surat quraish is more about the economics of quraish surat al-fil is about the kaaba but the kaaba is not mentioned in surat al-fil the kaaba is not mentioned in surat, it's mentioned in surat quraish but who's mentioned in surat al-fil the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam this is further fortifying what we alluded to before when Allah poses this question, He is telling His Messenger, I, will, I protected the Kaaba, but more so, I am here to protect you, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And so we find the commentary, Rab, uh, we'll read through it, min wujuh, ahaduha. There are several benefits of saying Rabbuka, the first of them, ka'annahu ta'ala qal, it is as though Allah said, innahum lamma shahadu hadhal intiqam. It is no doubt when these people witnessed this revenge that Allah took, ثُمَّ لَمْ يَتْرُكُوا عِبَادَةَ الْأَوْثَانِ And thereafter still didn't abandon the worship of idols. وَأَنْتَ يَا مُحَمَّدُ مَا شَاهَدْتَهُ You, O Muhammad, did not see those events. You didn't see them physically. ثُمَّ اَعْتَرَفْتَ Then you realized بِالشُّكْرِ وَالطَّاعَةِ But you still acknowledge the favor of Allah upon you with gratitude and with obedience. فَكَأَنَّكَ أَنْتَ الَّذِي رَأَيْتَ ذَلِكَ <coughs> الانتقام, and it is as though you saw that revenge of Allah that Allah had taken. فَلَا جَرَمَ تَبَرَّأْتَ عَنْهُمْ وَاخْتَرْتُكَ مِنَ الْكُلِّ And it's, it's clear that you disassociated yourself from those who do shirk in your own town. And I have picked you over everyone else. In other words, this is sort of a testimony to the character of Muhammad wasallam and him being picked as the final messenger. فأقول, then I say, رَبُّكْ أَيْ أَنَا لَكْ وَلَسْتُ لَهُمْ بَلْ عَلَيْهِمْ by saying, Rabbuk, your master, your Lord, what Allah is saying is, I am for you, I am in your, I am in your favor, I am on your side, and I am not in, on their side, actually I am against them. I stand against them. Just like I stood against Abraha and his armies. So this is a means of tahweel, of terrifying them. That, he, that Allah Azza wa Jal, the same Allah who destroyed Abraha, is now on the side, clearly on the side of his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa Now, the second benefit. إِنَّمَا فَعَلْتَ بِأَصْحَابِ الْفِيلِ ذَلِكَ تَعْظِيمًا Or فَعَلْتُ rather. I only did this, I did this for the, against the people of the elephant, the elephant people. تَعْظِيمًا لَكَ To show the greatness of you, meaning the Messenger وَتَشْرِيفًا لِمُقَدِّمِكَ And to honor your arrival. فَأَنَا كُنْتُ مُرَبِّيًا لَكَ قَبْلَ قَوْمِكَ And I have been the caretaker of your nation, for you, even before your nation. فَكَيْفَ أَطْرُكُ تَرْبِيَتَكَ بَعْدَ ظُهُورِكَ And then how am I going to leave your caretaking after your, your, you've become a messenger? فَفِيهِ إِشَارَةٌ لَهُ عَلَيْهِ السَّلَامِ بِأَنَّهُ سَيَوْفِرْ and in it also there's an indication that he will be, the Messenger والسلام, will actually be victorious and will overcome the city of Mecca and be able to cleanse Allah's house. Now, we talked about why not use the word Allah Azza wa Jal, why not use that word, and why not even say Rabbul Ka'aba, but Rabbuka, uh, referring to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa Now we go on to a comment by Al-Biqa'i rahimahullah, and then we move on. وَالتَّعْبِيلْ بِالْرَبْ And by calling, referring to Ar-Rabb, and using that terminology, مَعَ التَّشْرِيفْ لَهُ uh, again, to illustrate the nobility of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, al ishara bi dhikr al-ta'rid bi hikarat al-asnam alati samuha arbab lahum. And by using Rabbuka, what another thing Allah has done in between the lines, He has illustrated the ugliness and the pathetic nature of shirk that is being done at that house. He is the master who protected this house. How dare you put other masters to worship? How dare you put those other idols there? He is your master. Right? So this, just by using the word Rabb, it is almost a negation of the shirk that is being done there, and an attack against it. <coughs> this is, now we get, it gets really interesting. Just the language of Ashab al-Fil, 
commonly translated again, people of the elephant, or we said one possible rendition, the elephant people. وَلَمْ يَقُلْ أَرْبَابَ الْفِيلِ And the, Allah didn't say the masters of the elephant. أَوْ مَلَاكَ الْفِيلِ Or the owners of the elephant. He didn't use those words. He specifically used the word أَصْحَاب which it means people of, companions of, associates of. Ashab and sahaba is used of course for the companions of the Prophet It's a common word, you're familiar with it. Now, let's understand a few things about this because there's amazing literary power in this. لِأَدْنَا الصَّاحِبِ يَكُونَ مِنَ الْجِنْسِ because the word sahib can be a categorical kind of statement. Ashabul الْفِيلْ يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّا أُولَٰئِكَ الْأَقْوَامِ كَانُوا مِنْ جِنْسِ الْفِيلْ فِي الْبَهِيمِيَّةِ And by using this word as a categorical statement, calling them elephant people, it's like Allah is saying they are elephant-like people. They have features of animals. They have behavior and etiquette and morals of animals. So they are like animals. By calling them Ashab al-Feel. It's a sort of a, an insult. وَعَدْمَ الْفَهْمْ وَالْعَقْلِ And it's, it illustrates a lack of understanding and intellect. بَلْ فِيهِ دَقِيقَةً And there's even a more subtle comment here. وَهِيَا أَنَّهُ إِذَا حَصَلَتِ الْمُصَاحَبَةً بَيْنَ شَخْصَيْنِ This is also really important. Whenever there's companionship between two parties, two persons, فَيُقَالْ Then it is said, لِلْأَدْوَنُ إِنَّهُ صَاحِبُ الْأَعْلَى The lower, so there's two people that have companionship. One is lesser, one is higher. And the lesser one is said, this lesser one is the sahib of this higher one. So the lower guy, the, the one who is in a lower position in a relationship, is the sahib, and the one in the higher position is the other. In other words, for example, who's in a higher position, the messenger or the sahaba? The sahaba. So, but you can't say that the prophet is their companion, and they are the prophet's companion. Who's given the phrase companion? The lower party or the higher party? The lower party. You understand what he's saying? Now he says... The people were given the lower party. And the elephants were given the higher party. Because they're even worse. بَلْ هُمْ They're even worse than animals. <coughs> and he proves this point. He says, rhetorically it's there. But what's the proof of it? يَدُلُّ عَلَىٰ أَنَّ أُولَيْكَ الْأَقْوَامِ كَانُوا أَقَلُّ حَالٍ وَأَدْوَنُ مَنْزِلَةٍ مِنَ الْفِيلِ It illustrates that they were, these were less, worse off in their state and lower in their status than even the elephants. And why? Because when the, when the uh, elephants were commanded to destroy the house, وَمِمَّا يُؤَكِّدُ ذَلِكَ And what further fortifies this concept? أَنَّهُمْ كُلَّمَا وَجَهُ الْفِيلِ إِلَىٰ جِهَةِ الْكَعْبَةِ Every time they, they pointed the elephant in the direction of the Kaaba, كَانَ يَتَحَوَّلْ عَنْهُ وَيَفِرُّ عَنْهُ He would turn away from it and run away. In other words, you know how the messenger says, لَا طَاعَةَ لِمَخْلُوقٍ فِي مَعْصِيَةِ الْخَالِقِ This animal understood it better than them. The animal refuses to destroy the Kaaba and turns away. And these human beings who are clearly in this situation worse than animals, they don't understand that and they're bent upon its destruction. So this <coughs> in and of itself proves that he, the, the elephant was in a better position, in a better state than even they were when it comes to their, his purpose in creation. Then, أَلَيْسَ أَنَّ كُفَارَ قُرَيْشْ كَانُوا مَلَأُوا الْكَعْبَةِ مِنَ الْأَوْثَانِ مِنْ قَدِيمِ الدَّهْرِ This very important question. He says, isn't it true that the kuffar of Quraysh had filled the Kaaba with idols for a very long time? So they have done a crime against the Kaaba for a very long time. Fine. وَلَا شَكَّ أَنَّ ذَلِكَ كَانَ أَقْبَحْ مِنْ And it seems very clear, there's no doubt about it, that that crime of shirk is a worse crime than even destroying the walls of the Kaaba. He poses a very important philosophical almost question, right? This is Al-Nusi Rahimahullah. He says, think about this. 
That on the one hand, Quraysh have been doing shirk in the house Allah had commanded to be built for His worship alone. They have been doing shirk in that house for centuries. And on top of that, now somebody wants to come and destroy this house. Aren't they both criminals? And he says actually, from a point of view of from Iman, who's the bigger criminal? The bigger criminal, I mean, Abraha we learn only wants to do this for economic reasons. He has no kufr or rebellion against Allah. What's the bigger crime here? Shirk. So the question is, how come Allah destroyed Abraha, but He didn't destroy the Quraysh. So he asked this question, فَلِمَا سَلَّطَ اللَّهُ الْعَذَابِ عَلَى مَنْ قَصَدَ التَّخْرِيبِ How come Allah waged His destruction, His punishment, His torture upon the one who intended destruction for the Kaaba? وَلَمْ يُسَلِّطِ الْعَذَابِ عَلَى مَنْ مَلَأَهَا مِنَ الْأَوْثَانِ And he didn't, he didn't wreak His havoc and wreak His destruction upon the one who filled it up with idols. وَالْجَوَابِ And here's the response, لِأَنَّ وَضْعَ الْأَوْثَانِ فِيهَا تَعُدْ عَلَى حَقِّ اللَّهِ because destroying or, or doing uh, shirk is a violation of the right of Allah. But destroying the Kaaba would be a violation of the right of the people. This is the house built as a mercy for humanity. This, this house is a right of the people so that they would turn in the right direction and pray. This house was built so that humanity would have guidance. This was supposed to be the center. So it's the right of the people versus the right of Allah. And Allah prolongs and doesn't punish immediately when His rights are violated, but He comes to the protection of the people. SubhanAllah. وَالسُؤَالَ الثَّامِنَ And again, the next question. كَيْفَ الْقَوْلِ فِي الْعَرَابِ This is just a grammatical issue. He's talking about the word كَيْفَ and why is it in the nasb state. Basically, it's كَيْفَ uh, is because of فَعْلَ uh, not because of tara, which is a grammatical, it's a minor issue. It doesn't really affect the meaning all that much. So we're going to skip that part. Now finally, alam yaj'al kaydahum fi tadlil. The second alam. The first alam was, alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka bi ashabil fil. The second alam yaj'al kaydahum fi tadlil. Now didn't he, common translation, didn't he make their plot in waste? This is very literal translation. Or didn't he place their plot in vain, in naught? <coughs> or reduce it to nothing? First, let's pay attention to the word alam. It's mentioned again. So the first question was alam. The second is again, alam. And here, this, the purpose of this, these are the only two alam, by the way, there's no third, right? These are the only two. And these are the only two present tenses, tara and yaj'al. Now there's arsala after this, right? And ja'ala after this, and so the language changes a little bit. Now, I told you, I mentioned before, when the present tense is used, there's a continuity. There's a continuity. And if you look at the language, he took their plot and reduced it to waste. This is something not only that Allah did for them, but anyone who makes plots against Allah's deen, Allah will do this over and over and over again, hence justifying the use of the present tense, yaj'al in this case. Even though the meaning comes out in the past tense, the conjugation is in the present form, the mudara' form. That's the first thing. Then the word ja'ala as opposed to fa'ala. But the first ayah said, fa'ala, kaifa? Fa'ala. Here, referring to Allah, alam yaj'al, that alam yaf'al. Different verb is being used. What's the benefit here? Ja'ala is to take something that already exists and transform it. What the word itself indicates is, Allah, let them have their plan. Let them finish the entire execution of it. Plan it out for months and months. Get secure the funds, secure the army, secure the training, secure the means for the journey. Let them run it the whole way and put it to waste at the very end. He transformed, he morphed the plan at the very end. In other words, he didn't deviate the plan in the beginning. He could have not allowed them to consume an army or to, to amass an army, or to come up with the funds, or to be able to make it all the way. You know, they, they could have never met Abu Riqal. Remember the navigator that got them all the way to Mecca? They could have never met him if Allah had wanted. But he let them think the plan is in order. 
But he took that plan and made it different at the very end. So that's what Ja'ala seems to indicate. Is that this is, alam yaj'al. That Allah Azza wa Jalla let them play, played them along. Basically played them. And at the end Allah Azza wa Jalla pulled the strings on them. By the way, this, I don't know if I've given you this parallel before, but it's, a, it's an interesting parallel. My teacher Dr. Sami used to give it to me. He says, when someone's rebellious, one of the things Allah does is, uh, He lets them go free. And they, they feel like they got no problems, they can get away with anything. And it's compared to a dog that is wild. It's barking at you, it's biting at you. So you tie it up, right? And you tie it up with a one-foot leash. So it can't really move much. But if you really want to punish this dog, you take it in an open field and tie it to a 400-foot leash. Because if you tie it to a 400-foot leash, you know what's going to happen? It's going to think that it's free and it's running full speed. Right? When it's, it's only a foot-long leash, it can only pull so much. When it's running full speed and it reaches 400 feet, what happens? You see, it gets yanked, it gets choked, and that pain is far worse than the one-foot leash. The dog thinks he's got freedom, but this is actually worse for him. وَيَمُدُّهُمْ فِي تُغْيَانِهِمْ يَعْمَهُونَ Allah extends them in their rebellion. Let them remain blind in it. So Allah extended their means all the way to get to the Kaaba. Allah could have destroyed them much before. But He let them execute their plan. Let them play along. Let them dig their hole deeper. This will only make their punishment worse. Not only are they mushrikun, but they're committing crimes against Allah Azza wa Okay. Now the words arsala and you know when we get to them, I'll skip this part, so I'll just tell you now. وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا فَجَعَلَهُمْ كَعَصْفٍ مَأْكُولٍ is very particular punishment given to these people. So the past tense is used, which does not include continuity, which there is no need for, because that particular punishment is not repeated by Allah Azza wa Jalla. It was specifically sent to them. And the proof of that specific sending, inshallah, when we get to that ayah. Now, Qaid, another really interesting uh, comment, and this is where you'll see the benefit of that discussion we had before. The word Qaid in Arabic is used similar to the word Makr. So there are two words for making a plan, plot. Really not a plan, a plot. Qaid and Makr. Qaid is used for a plan made in secret. So it's a, the, the thing highlighted in a plot. And by the way, by plot, I mean a plan made to harm someone. That's what Qaid basically is. A plan made to harm someone. So you know, military plans can be called Qaid. But city planning cannot be called Qaid. You understand? When a plan is made like for a military offense or to rob someone, ambush, things like that, that would be Qaid. If it is made in secret. Now if a plan is made to deceive someone, or deception is being used as part of the plan, right? Deception in planning. That's makr. So when people are being misled, that's makr. When, pe- when things are being kept secret, that is Qaid. These are the two kinds of plots that are linguistically mentioned. Now Allah mentions Qaid. Alam yaj'al Qaidahum. Didn't he take their plot, implying the plot was secretive, and put it to waste? Now I haven't ex- explained that put it to waste part, but just this plot part. Let's see the question. اعلم أن الكيد هو إرادة مضرة بالغيب على الخفية. Know that kaid is a word used for an intent made to harm someone, harm the other, and it's made secretly. In قيلة, and if you were to ask, فلما سماه كيدا وأمره كان ظاهرا. How come it's called kaid while his plan was very open? I mean, he came. He didn't come by night. He came openly with his army. So why call it a secret plan? Another commentary, same exact thing. 
وسمي سبحانه ما فعله ابرها وجيشو كيدا مع انهم جاءوا لهدم الكعبه جهارا نهارا they came even though they came in the midst of the day and they came without any secrecy so how can we understand this word in this ayah لانهم كانوا يضمرون من الحقد والحسد والعداوه لاهل مكه one explanation this is the explanation repeated every mufassir that i read that asked this question had pretty much the same answer which has been because they were hiding in their hearts an animosity against the Meccans that was even worse than the one they were showing. So that's, they're saying that part of it was secret. I personally wasn't very satisfied with that response. Because it seems to me that a historical analysis of the events yields a much more powerful response to this question. Now it may be true, you know, مَمَا تُخْفِي صُدُورُهُمْ أَكْبَرَ Allah mentions this attitude of kuffar. What they're hiding in their hearts is even worse. That may be true and that may be secret. But... You know, in a, in a society that, is, that revolves around religion, in a society that revolves around religion, and of course in modern times, mostly nations are trying to push themselves as a secular state. So religion is not the central force in the Christian world or in the Muslim world. It's not the central force. But in the ancient world, religion played a central role in every society, be it pagan, Hindu, Christian, Jewish, Muslim. Religion plays a central role. Now, if religion plays, it is your constitution, it is what you have your allegiance to. When you say you're proud to be, you don't mention nation, you mention religion. Right? That was the world view of the past, the pre-modern era. And in that time, if you want to galvanize the people and motivate the people to take military action, what do you use to justify your actions? You use religion. You know, in modern times, you can use patriotism. You can use for the sake of our nation, for the sake of our people, for the sake of our land. By the way, is religion even today used to extend military means and manipulate people? Sure. All religions, by the way. It's not just you know, one or the other, it's all religions. Use religion as a means of oppression against another. It's possible, it does happen. Now, <coughs> we, we, when, when we study the historical account, we learn that the motivations were actually not religious. What were they? They were political, they were economic. The, you know, the Yemen was no longer the economic capital. That had shifted to Mecca. And to get their attention back and to get that revival going, of the, the trade power going, they had to now make an offense against Mecca. But they covered it up with what facade? With religion. This is our new Kaaba, this is Qulays, they don't come and worship this, they're not Christian people, so they're gonna come with the Salib, they're gonna come with the crucifix, and they're gonna make it look like this is a war of religions, the war of faiths. And we're standing up for the religion, and they're galvanizing their people for this cause. Of course, no, Habasha was a very strong Christian state. For them to offer elephants or anything else as military support, already suggests they saw it as a Christian thing to justify to their people. But what's the hiding underneath, what's the real qaid, is really something else. They have monetary advances. By the way, this qaid is interesting to mention, because this is the same problem with the Quraysh. On the outside, they're saying, أَجَعَلَ الْآلِهَةَ إِلَهَ وَاحِدًا He took he took all of our gods and made them into one. This is a very, very strange thing. We don't get it. How can all those gods be turned into one? That's on the outside. But you know what's going on on the inside? Their entire economy. Their entire economy. I'll give you a comparison. What if you said, uh, someone com- comes out, some movement comes out in Las Vegas and said, we need to get rid of all the casinos. Right? We need to get rid of all the casinos. And somebody says, no, this is part of our history, it's part of our heritage, it's part of our culture. Is that the real reason? that people would be against, it's the money. It's the people that are coming in, right? So you can cover it up with heritage and history and this and that or the other, but the underlying causes are still there. And this is really exactly what the Quraysh were doing. 
you get rid of the idols, they have no political power because all the idols are being held hostage in Mecca. So people have to come and do Hajj. And when they have to come and do Hajj there, they have to go shopping. And when they have to go shopping, their economy booms. That's how it works. And they can go outside and travel without fear. Why? Because the other pagans respect them as custodians of the house where their idols are being held hostage. You get rid of this system, their entire economy collapses. That entire mafia system is finished. So the word qaid is alluding to the qaid of abraha and the undertones of economic pursuit. But also it's referring to it kind of a, 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 a kind of a poke at and a pun at even the Quraysh and the Qaid that they made against the Messenger. And Allah says, if I can take their Qaid, which was much bigger, and he could put that to waste, what is your Qaid gonna be? Because those who you couldn't fight against, you had to run up into the mountains, those are the ones I put to waste. What are you gonna do? Where do you stand? Right? So there's this comparison taking place remarkably in this surah. So that's just the use of the word qaid. Now let's talk about dallala, yudallilu, tadlil. Usually in the Quran, dal is used, dalla. But this is dallala, tadlil. It's the, it's the uh, masdar of a taf'il, bab taf'il. So let's understand the difference between it. Dalla to, to, to be lost, literally. To lose, to be lost. <coughs> to place something where you can no longer find it, etc. Dallala to waste, to destroy. Ay dayyahu, to put it completely to waste, where it's no longer usable at all. Alam yaj'al, this is the tafsir commentary. Alam yaj'al sa'i al-habasha ashab al-feel fi takhrib al-ka'ba fi tadlil. Ya'ni, didn't we take the efforts of the habasha, the people of the elephant, in the destruction of the Kaaba? Didn't we put it into waste? Meaning, fi tadlilihim amma aradu wa hawalu min takhribiha, in wasting their plans in regards to the efforts they made in destroying it. This is the base meaning. But then they go a step further. The word tadlil in Arabic, taf'il generally, has repetition in it. In other words, Allah at many occasions put it to waste. The first time they built the, the qullays, they thought, How, who's going to compare with this super mall that we've built of a Kaaba, compared to that old rinkety place over there in Mecca, who's going to go there now that we have this? That failed. Then they tried to convince people to turn in this direction, that failed. Then they, they, you know, another failure was burnt. It was burnt down, we, we learned about that, and it was defecated upon, etc. So that's another tadlil. Then they came all the way here to destroy the Kaaba, and that went, that went into failure. So, in, if anything, it added to the awe and respect for the Kaaba rather than reducing it. It only, you know, uh, put their entire plan to waste. So, one after another, their plans were destroyed. وَمَا دُعَاءُ الْكَافِرِينَ إِلَّا فِي Like Allah says, what is the prayer of disbelievers except being put to waste? Now, a little bit more commentary, inshallah ta'ala. Uh, the word fi, the use of the word fi, this is also very important. وَمَعْنَى حَرْفَ الظَّرْفِ when, when the Mufassir says, حَرْفَ الظَّرْفَ شَوْكَانِي He's referring to the word fi. Allah didn't say He put their plan to waste. He said He put their plan in utter waste. Now what's the benefit of saying in? In Arabic, in is used to give you imagery. That's why He calls it حَرْفَ الظَّرْفِ Dharf literally means a location, a space, a time, Right? So it's either ظرف زمان or مكان, time or space. In this case, he's almost making you visualize, it is as though you take something good and you throw it in a fire where it's burned to a crisp and it's useless. It can't be used anymore. So Allah took their entire elaborate plan, which was so well made, and He completely put it to waste. And that waste is clear for everyone to see. So that element of being able to see, it could be easy for anyone to see how that elaborate plan was completely destroyed and wasted. Dallala actually, one more uh, linguistic comment on it. Uh, Imr al-Qais uh, was also 
call this Al-Malik Al-Dalil. Dalil with Dal, not Dal. That's the other word, okay? Al-Dalil. Ibn Al-Qais was called the king with the quality of Dalil. Why? لِأَنَّهُ ضَلَّلَ مُلْكَ أَبِيهِ أَيْ ضَيَّعَهُ because he wasted the fortunes of his father. He inherited kingdom, and he wasted the fortunes of his father. So his name became Dalil, because he put it to complete waste. He could have done so much with it, but he wasted the whole thing. Now we get to the last uh, two ayat, inshallah ta'ala, or three ayat. Uh, maybe I'll go ten more minutes, inshallah ta'ala, and we'll conclude next week, and combine Surah Al-Fil with it. Let's see. Let me at least finish this third ayah, and then we'll conclude. وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيِّرًا أَبَابِينَ And he sent against them, Birds, that's, I'm, I'm, again, literal translation right now. He sent against them birds, uh, ababil, herds upon herds upon herds. Now, just a historical comment describing the, the, the birds. When Abdul Muttalib turns back, فَالْتَفَتَ He turned away. وَهُوَ يَدْعُو And he was making dua to Allah. فَإِذَا هُوَ بِطَيْرٍ Then all of a sudden he sees birds. مِنْ نَحْوِ الْيَمَنِ Coming from the direction of Yemen. Which is interesting because the army also came from Yemen, right? Wallahu, wallahi, he says, فَقَالْ He says, I swear by Allah, إِنَّهَا لَطَيْرٌ غَرِيبَةٌ It is very strange kinds of birds for sure. مَا هِيَ بِنَجْدِيَّةٌ وَلَا تَهَمِّيَّةٌ They're not from Najd and they're not from Tahama. كَانَ مَعَ كُلِّ طَائِرٍ حِجْرٍ فِي مِنْقَارِهِ وَحِجْرًا فِي رِجْلَيْهِ And in every single bird, there would be a, a pebble in its beak and a, two pebbles in each of its claws, in its feet. Okay, So that's his description of it. فَكَانَ الْحِجْرِ يَقَعُوا عَلَىٰ رَأْسِ الرَّجُلِ فَيَخْرُجُ مِنْ دُبْرِهِ Then the, the stone that they would land, these rocks, these pebbles that would land, they would land on the head of a person and come out from behind them. قَالَ أَبُوْ عُبَيْدَةَ أَبَابِيلَ Abu Ubaidah describing the word Ababil says, جَمَعَاتْ فِي تَفَرُّقَةَ Multiple groups of different kinds. In other words, it wasn't one species of bird, there were many different species of birds. Um, and that will come more later on also. يُقَالْ جَاءَتَ الْخَيْلْ أَبَابِيلِ It is also said the, the horses came, <coughs> herds upon herds from many different directions. أَيْ جَمَعَاتْ مِنْ هَاهُنَا وَهَاهُنَا Groups upon groups coming from here and there. قَالَ النُّحَاسِ Nuhas, a great, a great um, grammarian of our history, wrote Arab al-Qur'an. وَحَقِيقَتُهُ أَنَّهَا جَمَعَاتْ عِظَامِ And the reality is that these are huge groups. Huge, awesome flocks of birds. Not one, but many different flocks of birds. I haven't seen too many birds in Texas. But you know, if you travel between like New York and Maryland, sometimes birds are migrating, especially in the area of Delaware. A lot of birds, right? So you'll see for a good half hour, just a flock of tens of hundreds of thousands of birds, a continuous stream. And according to other historical narrations, they were coming from every direction, and you couldn't see the sky, it became dark. SubhanAllah. It's an incredible scene to even imagine. And so, you know, when we read this language and I'm translating, you can imagine the Arabs because they have such picturesque imagery in their language. When this story was told over and over and over again, you can imagine children sitting around and imagining this as though they can almost see it. And you have to know that the Arabs had an amazing imagination. They really did. They were in the desert. There's nothing really to look at. So when, you have, when you're in that kind of situation, you develop an active imagination, which shows in their literature. Their literature is full of picturesque imagery. And it kind of compensates for the lack of imagery in reality in the terrain of Arabia, you know. Uh, anyhow, so, وَقِيلْ كَانَتْ طَيْرًا خَضْرًا خَرَجَتْ مِنَ الْبَحْرِ And it's said that these were green birds that came out of the ocean. So you have varying narrations historically about the kinds of birds. But, <coughs> you see, what happens sometimes in tafsir, this is my personal comment, you don't have to agree with it, okay. What happens in tafsir sometimes is, our mufassirun, may Allah reward all of them, they get so busy talking about what, uh, sometimes you lose sight of how. Allah didn't pay it, He doesn't want us to pay attention to what species of birds, and how long their beaks were, and what color were they. Which is great information, alhamdulillah, we have it. 
What's the point? Allah didn't say what He did, Allah said, how? How? How can that be? How can small creatures like birds that are weightless, that are literally weightless, destroy an army associated with the most monumental weights? Elephants. How can that be? How can you take these most two extreme things? You know, a lot of times you'll see if you go to the zoo, there are elephants and there's birds sitting on top of them. Harmless creature to the elephant. The creature they would never expect any harm from, right? And then how can that be that Allah uses birds Herds upon herds of them to destroy this monumental army, subhanAllah. Now the use of the word afsala ala, afsala alayhim as opposed to afsala ila. Ala tufidul isti'la. The word ala, it serves the benefit of showing superiority or uh, being above. Wa isti'mal ala fil Quran ajib. And it's a unique usage in the Quran. Fi isti'la wa tasallut. And it includes that of domination and of. Uh, you know, wreaking havoc upon someone and imposing oneself, forcing upon oneself. And that is why in the Quran, when we find Allah sending punishment, He doesn't say arsala, He sent to, He said He sent upon, ala, which illustrates punishment. Like He sent a, you know, a, a rain upon them or destruction upon them, etc. So to and upon, in English they seem kind of ambiguous, but in Arabic it makes a big difference between ala and ila. So ala hatta idha fatahna alayhim baban dha adabin shadeed ala until we opened the doors against them, upon them, over them that had punishment of intense value. Wa arsala alayhim tayran, fa arsala alayhim tufan. So we find over and over again, we send birds against them, a storm against them. When against is used, ala is used. But when a messenger is sent, a messenger is not punishment, a messenger is mercy. Fa arsala ila fir'auna rasulah. Not ala fir'auna, but illustrating that even though he was sent to Fir'aun, he was still a mercy. If he was sent as a punishment, what word would have been used? Ala, right? So it would have been a different word altogether. So Ala comes with punishments. <coughs> so now some commentary on the birds, and then inshallah ta'ala we finish our uh, session for today. This is Tabari's commentary, by the way. He sent upon, your master sent upon them birds that were of different nature. And one group would follow another from different directions. And ababil, the word ababil is a plural word for which there is no singular in Arabic. Ababil means herds upon herds, groups upon groups, right? Flocks upon flocks in bird terminology. I wouldn't say herds for birds, but you know, flocks upon flocks of birds. Scores upon scores, if you will, right? وَالطَّيِّرْ اسم جَمَعْ لِكُلِّ مَا مِنْ شَأْنِهِ أَنْ يَطِيرْ فِي الْهَوَاءِ And طَيِّرْ, the word طَيِّرْ is used as a, uh, a, pluralist, a plural noun, a collective noun, it's called in English, signifying all birds. So he didn't say طُيُّر, he said طَيِّرْ, which means just all forms of birds. If we just say طُيُّر, birds, but if you say طَيِّرْ, all kinds of birds, they came. وَالتَّنْكِيرُهُ لِلتَّنْوِيعُ وَالتَّهْوِيلُ And making the tanween on it, tayyran, you hear that tanween on it? The benefit of that is that tanwi' illustrating there were many different kinds, وَالتَّهْوِيلُ and to terrify. Because tanween is used in Arabic for adham, or igra even. Birds were sent. And it, you know, I'm pounding on it like that, because that's what the nasab state does in Arabic sometimes. And so, why is that important to note? Because the Arabs who remember that, they're being told, remember the birds? You know, that's how they're being told. Because this is not something that's some ancient event that they never knew about. This is something they know about. And you, that doesn't scare you that those birds didn't drop pebbles on you. 
right? They, they had GPS on you too, but you know, they only dropped it on other targets. So they, they, this is لِلتَّهْوِيلِ to terrify them. So almost inshaAllah ta'ala, ababil we talked about herds upon herds, similar plurals in Arabic are shamatid, abadid, wa nahwa dhalik. So, uh, just a little bit more about uh, uh, ababil for those of you that are Arabic students, Ibn Hisham says, al-ababil al-jama'at wa lam tatakallam al-arab biwahid, that the Arabs never used a singular word for ababil. Ibn Abbas wa al-dahak, both of them say, ababil yatba'u ba'duhum ba'dan, that ababil refers to groups that follow one after the other. Hassan al-Basri and Qatada say, al-ababil al-kathira, ababil refers to that which are many and many. وَقَالَ مُجَاهِدْ أَبَابِيلْ شَتَّى مُتَتَابِعَ مُجْتَمِعًا That they are dispersed, that they are continuous, and they are unified in one place. So they're dispersed in terms of their tanwi'ah, their, their nature, different species of birds, but they're grouped together, bunched together. And they come from الْمُخْتَلِفَ تَأْتِي مِنْ هَاهُنَا وَمِنْ هَاهُنَا That they are different kinds of birds, this is what Ibn Zayd says, they come from here and from there. أَتَتْهُمْ مِنْ كُلِّ مَكَانٍ And it came upon them from every single direction. وَقَالُ الْفَرَّاءُ Once again, لَمْ أَسْمَعْ مِنَ الْعَرَبِي فِي تَوْحِيدِهَا شَيْئًا I didn't hear from the Arabs using a singular form of it ever. That's just وَأَرْسَلَ عَلَيْهِمْ طَيْرًا أَبَابِيلٍ I'm going to give you a little view of inshallah ta'ala what we're going to be doing next week, finishing this surah and moving on to Surah Quraysh. But I, uh, and I want to just mention this one thing. This surah is a gift to the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And in and of itself, you know, Al-Biqa'i rahimahullah commenting on this surah, he said that, uh, that uh, Allah's Messenger والسلام, uh, Allah gives His Messenger gifts even before He's born. And He protects His city and the city in which He's going to be born, you know, uh, and the house, and that house which He wasn't even praying in the direction of to begin with. But Allah knew that eventually He will be praying in that direction and He turns back towards the Qibla, Tardaha, to please that Messenger So we have this newly found respect and honor and regard for the Messenger of Allah وسلم, because of just the phrase, Alam tara kayfa fa'ala rabbuka. Just that word rabbuka gives us newly found respect and a refreshed appreciation of how highly Allah regards His Messenger This was an event, the Makkah Salat, this was done for them. They thought Allah protected them. And Allah made it clear, no, 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 no. This is for you. This is for you, number one, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Subhanallah. So may Allah Azza wa give us a clear and a deep understanding of this book and the ability to practice upon it. May Allah Azza wa take the good things that are said and enter it into our hearts. And anything that is incorrect, may He remove it from our memories and our hearts. Barakallahu li wa lakum fi Qur'an al-Hakim. Wa nafa'ni wa iyaakum bil-ayati wa dhikr al-Hakim. Wassalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.